I got diagnosed and one of my early thoughts were like, what about rowing? Which is so ridiculous. But actually, like, how lucky that is. Like, how great is that, that I had that to think about? And a lot of people said, oh, why did you carry on? And I'm like, well, if I'd have thought this is an opportunity to stop, then maybe I'm not doing the right thing. Hey, what is up? Welcome to Last Show Counts. Today's guest is a Paralympic champion, world champion, world record holder, and breast cancer survivor. It's with great pleasure that we can welcome Erin Kennedy to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Wow, thanks, thanks for coming. Again, thanks for coming, but thanks for coming to our club. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good, it's such a good venue. Uh, there's no surprise we keep using it. For Spotify people, where are we? Uh, we're in the Leander Library again, which is uh, a gorgeous uh, venue, like really nice. One of the biggest collection of books, rowing books in the world. Yeah, I- I'd, lo- I'd love for someone to fact check me on this, but I think it's the oldest rowing library in the world. We'll go with that, yeah. It might be as well, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure someone will jump on and tell you if you're wrong. So. <laughs> Perfect, more engagement, more, more angry <laughs> yeah. people in comments. We're not quite at that level where people are annoyed people are commenting on our videos yet. That's a new level of fame. <laughs> I don't know, I don't, know. I don't know if you want it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. No, I'm fine, I'm fine for now. Don't comment. Uh, also, I'm really excited about this one. Um, talking about you know overcoming adversary. Um, I think you've got uh, an incredible story, um, which we'll get onto more. Um, also, kind of delve into the the Paralympic system. Um, you're the first athlete we've had on who's been involved in that. Um, so that's going to be interesting as well. And then, yeah, talking about you know what it takes to to get to the top and stay on top for for quite a few years as you have done. So um, yeah, it's going to be really fun. Yeah, um, I'm excited. Start where we normally do at the beginning. How mm-hmm. how I know how you got into rowing, but for everyone else, how did how did you get into rowing? So I always feel like, I mean, so I think about rowing and I'm like, oh yeah, oh I haven't done it for that long, and now I'm like, oh, I'm actually older than <laughs> older than I think, and I have done it for a little while now. So I started rowing 2011, yep. um, and I was 19, and I started at Pembroke College in Oxford, and I. To be honest, I, I did sport. I was sporty as a kid, but not definitely jack of all trades, master of none, you know, decent at netball. Um, I did decent at swimming. I mean, I did PE, GCSE, and one of them was weightlifting. So, uh, <laughs> but then the other one was dance. So, you know, really mix it up. Bit of both. Yeah. And uh, I did loads of musical theater and drama and singing. And I, I love that. And yeah, I basically went to Pembroke, picked Pembroke actually, um, uh, in Oxford basically because it had a great choir and stuff like that and then my first week went down in Freshers Week to just see what Rome was all about and I sort of felt like it was a bit of a rite of passage to give it a go like I think mm. there's mad mm. stats like a third of all students from undergrad through to postgrad get in a boat at some point in their studies oh okay so with with postgrad there must be like a third Paddy said in Cambridge it's like 50% of student population try rowing that's an incredible stat yeah I mean I I believe it yeah totally and like everyone just gives it a go and you know some people go oh not for me but I mean I just loved it like the college the college experience for me was was kind of set up my love for the sport and you know why I do it and why I still love it and um I mean I I think find any cocks that doesn't like people and they're probably not a very good cocks <laughs> you know coxing is all about 
kind of cultivating and being an architect of a team. That's how I sort of see it. And ideally, ironically, as a cox, you're sort of the silent architect because you're sort of managing people, managing teams, managing dynamics, managing coaches sometimes, managing athletes, managing their relationships and all that sort of thing. So ultimately, you know, when we're on the water and you're asking for something and everyone's on the red line already, that they're going to make that change and give it to you. And yeah, I started at Pembroke and I met some amazing people. Sounds sounds like you were in human resources when you're in a (laughs) coxing seat, like get that HR promotion. Talking about (laughs) jack of all trades, but it it is, but in a good way. You need to have those different abilities and you sit right between, we've talked about it. Um, You're a coach, but you are also an athlete and Mm. you're you're neither, but you're both at the same time. It's a very strange dynamic I think but um so did you start by rowing first no No? so I'm also quite unusual because you know some coxes you know like Morgan Road and obviously Matilda Horn Road and and, you know some of my kind of peers of my generation and then they sort of moved into coxing for various reasons but for me I I basically they turned up you know I'm five foot two as per every club in the country generally they're a little bit short on coxes um no pun intended and they were literally like jump you know have you have you thought about this and I don't think anyone really talks about it, but starting to cox is really hard and really stressful because unlike, you know, rowing or anything else, and even in other team sports, you know, you can't just stop and then someone explain exactly how to do it or what to do or demonstrate. Like it's you and an eight and you are literally in charge of everyone's safety. You need to yeah. do your job and steer and all these sorts of things like steering a boat is like steering nothing else. It's like driving the car, but you have no access to the pedals. Yeah. You know, you can't change gear. You can only like, it's like voice controlled Tesla or something. Yeah. yeah. I, instead of being able to see out the windscreen, there's basically no windscreen. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to like poke your head out and yeah. decide. Yeah. And, and like, I remember, I mean, the club shall remain nameless, but it's not one of the clubs I've coxed regularly. But I jumped into cox at Wallingford Head a fair few number of years ago. And again, like, so, you know, Wallingford, big S-Bends, that's some of the biggest challenges for Coxes. And I think it's one of the harder head races, you know, in the South to do with the S-Bends. And I remember being like, okay, you know, we need to row harder strokes, I'd lighter bow side because I had this tiny little rudder on this Felipe or whatever I was in. And then other, you know, computer said no, just carried on doing the same. And I just remember being like, like, you know, like you said, like you've got no control of the gear. So I'm like, well, this rudder's not going to do nothing mm. like this. And I remember being like, like literally I was almost at the point where I was like, you're going to have to drop out. Like we need to get around. Someone dropped, someone fell off their seat, go around the F-bends. I ended up steering with my arms, which I've never done. I've only seen it on like reels uh-huh. and TikTok. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, what no one ever talks about is how absolutely drenched you get because obviously you just literally put your arm in and obviously all the water comes in the boat. And obviously it was ahead, so it was route in November. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, they're, they're uncontrollable. You know, um, you know you're trying to, all you got are your words and sometimes people don't listen <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. So, so it's effectively like kind of trying to direct like a, a dog sled cart isn't it you've just got like eight <laughs> eight rabid mutters in front of you that are trying to work their ass off and you've kind of kind of got to like bring them in the rain like, <laughs> corral them yeah yeah definitely yeah it's a it's a strange it's a i always find a funny thing the coxing dynamic as well it's like how much you can lie to your crew like there is there is times when it's required but if you do it too much and you lose faith and like there there is like exactly what you said like there's so much um about coxing i think there's still like so much that's just not known by so many people that do it mm. like, i think when i first got into the college system i was like cool like, 
road for a really long time. I've coached at Leander. Like, I'm going to have no problem like helping any of these people. And then the cops is like, well, what do I do? I'm like, oh, um, I don't. Yeah, like I really had to kind of sit down and be like, what do I know and what don't I know? And like go over it and start learning these things again. Um, I think, yeah. And I, again, like of any system, the one where the cox is most important, I would say, something like bumps racing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're you're so much more responsible. You're responsible for so much more than in many other races. And I think you can have such a bigger impact. Yeah. Certainly than anything else at that level. Oh, When you get higher, definitely. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I think the cox is, is sort of like a goalie. Um, you know, fundamentally, you're doing something different to everybody else, you know, on the field of play. Um, and ideally, right, a good goalie, their work goes unnoticed 95% of the time because they're just doing their job, which is, you know, being effective, being efficient, stopping balls getting in. And then I think that you've got the times when you slip up and you make a mistake and everyone knows about it. It's very open. It's very clear. You know, it can involve anything from, you know, making roll calls in the race, but to as obvious as crashing, you know, it's pretty clear. Um, But then sometimes you have those moments where you pull a race out of the bag you do something normally on the water that just blows everyone away and you turn the tide of a race or you make a strategic call. And that's like those few saves a season that everyone still talks about and like that penalty or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think there's I think there's similarity in it. Like you are a little bit isolated in the team environment, but it's sort of necessary as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can see an issue like also like with giving feedback to Coxes. It's coaches are so prone just to get like negative bashing about every single mistake they've done. Be like, oh, here's no feedback for like two weeks, and be like, a list of things that you've done wrong in the last two weeks, and be like, well, this isn't like useful or anything. Give me like something positive. Like, how am I supposed to like improve if I'm in like, if I, if I don't get told if I'm doing a good job or this or that? It's it's difficult. It's like a goalie, right? Unless yeah. you, unless you have a massive fuck up or, or something like that, like. You tend to stay under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. You get the big highs and the low lows, and yeah. then for the for the middle, you're just kind of ignored. Um, yeah. I think it's also funny that uh, it's considered acceptable at the end of the session to cough and say you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. But like, God forbid, like a cops would be like seven, like you're just not getting your You know, like there's like a certainly like a little bit no more negativity seems like acceptable one way than yeah. than the other. Yeah, I think so. And um, so I think like. There's, there is a change. I think there is a slow turning of the tide towards actually understanding that coxes should be coached, um, mm. and there is real added value for that. And um, because uh, you know, coxes, I would say actually they're probably really, really keen to learn and keen mm. to be coached and keen to have that input. Because a lot of coxes do go through that really negative um, cycle. And they're still there. <laughs> they're still yeah. turning up and they're doing yeah. it. So think how much more validated and how much more encouraged and stuff they would be if, if they did if they did get that that coaching and something that um, you know, myself and there's five of the coxes um have kind of set up this wox, uh, which is the winning cox, which is trying to basically provide, you know, free, accessible guidance for coxes and how to develop them whether you are new or you're really experienced but then also coaches as well like how do you coach your coxes because Mm. you know particularly let's think of some of the top boys schools you know if we go all the way back down to kind of the schooling system um you know like a a cox can you know make or break you winning 
the PE. Um, you know, and now we've got obviously you know the the women's eights coming into Henley as well, and the women's school eights, and how then that that's going to turn the tide. And and you know, developing those coxes, that's it's not just one percent. You'll make sure everything's right on your boat. You'll make sure it's on weight. You'll make sure everything. But if you're not developing that cox, like your athletes might not end up getting there warmed up. They might not, you know, make that call in the middle of the race. Absolutely. The contribution of a cox is not just to steer the boat straight and to get the crew moving. It's like, you know, reading their race, like when the dynamic or the tempo of it's changed halfway through. Okay, we have a gap here in the next 10 strokes to make a move because other crew are, you know, come, just coming down from their vest and all sorts of things. So it's like really important to share that knowledge, especially for the lack of cox coxing resources, I think we've had like six or seven coxes on the podcast so far. Uh, it's just really important, like, to talk about, um, you know, how to how to maximize these contributions like made for the crew, but also like um, what you said um, a minute ago, which is how coxes just really also want to push themselves like athletes, and like it makes sense, right? It's such a competitive sport. You come into it, you can't necessarily contribute physically to the race. So you're just going to like drive yourself up the wall, like mentally and trying to improve, trying to find an edge, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, but yeah, also from like a, from, I've spent a lot of time in eights, like from the athlete's perspective, like having, you can work so much harder if you're not having to worry about those other things. It's, it's sort of like mm -hmm. the difference between almost between, you know, rowing out in a single on yourself or just being on the earth. Like if you're in a single and you're looking around and you're wondering how it's going and what's my race tactic and when am I going to go? Whereas if you've got someone else doing all that for you, then then you've got eight guys who are just erging it forward. And like then you can really maximize maximize your physical performance. So you're also like taking a lot of the decision making or the work away from the athlete in order to let them like specialise and make the boat go faster. So like, yeah, I think it's which we've, we've said and I know everyone says it's a bit of cliche, but like so un, unsung heroes are rowing and um, you know, I always and I've even had coaches said to me maybe when I have criticized a cox, be like, you do it. You do, oh, you, oh, I think you span wrong that, you know, down there. Well, well, the stream's pretty high and there were six boats around. So, like, you have a go, mate. You know, like, you really want that responsibility or do you want to shut up and, and just work? Yeah. 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 <laughs> shut up and work. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, like, coxes are one of the things we're always trying to do with coxes is build a bit more of a community with coxes because, I've, you know, I've talked about you are that sort of isolated person. But actually, I think, like, maybe historically because, you know, I would say the pyramid is um sort of very very like this very 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 shallow you've got a lot of people who maybe casually cox or get bullied into coxing or or you gives it a go uh through to you know then you've got your schools and clubs and then you know you've got obviously places like you know your top end clubs where people obviously kind of looking up towards under 23s potentially or or you know trying to break into the senior squads um, and then, you know, at the top, you know, you've literally got three coxes in the GB rowing team and it gets it gets pretty pointy pretty quick. Um, and I think one of the challenges with coxing as well is it's really subjective. It really, really does depend on the coach you're working with, the crew you're working with. I, I would say there's like a history of the people you're working with as well. Like if you have coxed them for a while, even if it wasn't in that particular setup, it's going to give you an innate advantage because you know what they're working on, how they've developed what they respond to, all these sorts of things. And so it does, yeah, it, 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 there's not a lot of space on the shelf, I think, for kind of that, that top, top level. And so then I think it breathes potentially sometimes a culture of like, you know, protective, this is mine, I can't share my stuff, I can't share my, my mm. kind of, whether it's recordings or advice. And, and 
that's sort of one of the reasons we all sort of wanted to come together and go like why not like and and I'm gonna call out in a, in the best possible way like Rory Copus has got so many coxing recordings online mm-hmm. which is absolutely amazing um but if you try and find female coxes online and their racing recordings you'll get about three or four hits of like top international high level really important races almost only because Morgan's put two on in the, in <laughs> exactly. the last year. Exactly. Yeah. And how many of them are when they don't win? Mm. How many of them are training? Because mm. let's be honest, who wants to listen to 50 minutes of training? I get that. But you might want to listen to five minute segments yeah. and little bits and bobs um, and actually understanding, okay, what's a training piece like? What's a UT1 piece like? What's yeah. a race piece? What happens when you're up? And then you drop down. <laughs> like, how do you cock then? Absolutely. I mean, even like listening back to like session recordings can be really useful. I remember like I set up uh, four of our coxes um, when we were coaching in Oxford College a couple of years ago with with a mic. And uh, they went through the exact same session on the program like over the course of two days and we were doing race prep. And it was, we probably got about 45 minutes recording or something like this, but it was so interesting, like how they handled the crew, how they managed the nerves pre-start, how do they spin, how do they calm down, how do they correct their members when they like make a mistake, etc. So it, it could be absolutely very useful to coxes, but like, who would have even thought to put a training recording up on, onto YouTube or onto another platform that it can be listened to? Yeah, technology's moved on, which has made it easier. Obviously, before it was like a little dictaphone mm. to plug it into your computer, <laughs> and now it just like the Coxbox does it for you. Yeah, like, like things have changed. I feel like it's great. Like Coxorb does it for you. Um, I actually mostly use NK now, partly because um, I like for like having an NK stroke coach, so I find the data is mm. a little bit more um, reactive, and then it also matches my stroke man as well because obviously I'm in a bow loaded four. Our stroke coach is quite a long way away. So sometimes the data is slightly off and, um, you know, I don't want to be calling something and he's like, the splits are fine. Um, <laughs> so I find that's kind of better. But then I actually use my Apple Watch. I just do a voice yeah. note on my Apple Watch. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. So, you know, there you go. Top tip for any coxes who, you know, don't have a cox orb necessarily is, um, yeah, like there, there are multiple ways to do it. Like, you know, I'm not advising anyone takes their phone in the boat necessarily. However, you know, if it's a dry day and you know you're not going to capsize, I don't want to be responsible for any phones at the bottom of the Thames. But, you know, you can tuck it into um, a waterproof and, you know, even do a voice note there. And and I think, you know, encouraging feedback because let's say a coach is relatively new or hasn't normally coached coxes before. Here's a really easy way to start is basically, here's a recording. Can we sit down and go through it together? Yeah. yeah. Um, because also a lot of the time, coaches can't hear what the coxes are saying. Yeah, I realized we, we um, when I was coaching at Oxford College, it was from the launch. Mm. I mean, I can't hear a thing yeah. the coach is saying, uh, that the cox is saying. And uh, I kept, I, I started doing this thing. I kept it a secret. So I thought this is a real advantage. I'm not coaching anymore, so I don't mind. Everyone else can hear. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I ride a motorbike and I take my wife on the back and you can buy like a two-way radio. It's pretty cheap, mm-hmm. like on Amazon, 40, 40, 50 quid, I think. Um, so I took the two-way radios, which are normally supposed to fit in a helmet. I strapped them to the coxing headset. So uh, the cox would be hooked up to the, to the cox box as normal, but also would have like a two-way link to me. So it was slightly, at times, slightly disruptive to the rowers because they would hear only one side of conversation. But certainly for like novice coxes, for brand new, to have like direct contact. And then also for me to just stay quiet and hear what they're saying. Yep. So I think we like pushed on, like that was really good. It means you're not shouting over a river at seven in the morning, annoying everyone, like not really understanding each other. 
just have this like two-way radio thing so yeah if anyone wants to try that on out we found that like super useful certainly to start with i think potentially a little bit of a hindrance once the coxes got to the level where they should be capable to do it on themselves but they had this crutch so rather than make yeah. a decision it would be like oh tom should i do this now like you know you should do that you know? yeah so there is there's a time and a place for it not always yeah, especially, yeah something we found especially when you've got ringer coxes or coxes who are just jumping in for a session and mm. they have no idea what they're doing cool don't worry i can see what you're doing here's a radio do this 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 and that yeah, I mean, that's a great idea. I mean, to some extent, like we, you know, I might steal that for when we go out to Barese because yeah, we yeah. go on, you know, long paddles, you know, 16 plus K or whatever. And then the coach is there and obviously she's got radio. I normally have the radio then hooked up so you can talk directly through the radio into mm -hmm, mm -hmm. into kind of the speakers. But yeah, she can't hear what I'm saying. So, yeah, and sometimes I'm the night, especially like a long session, I'm like, right, we're really going to dig into this technical change. And I'm like, three, four minutes in, it's really good. And then it's like, yeah. I'm, you know, on the front end of this, she's like, we're really going to fix some back end now. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. come on. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think, and I think like that's the big thing. It's relationships with coaches and coxes. And, um, you know, it's, it goes both ways. You yeah. need to, as a cox, be proactive and, and push that. But it's also for coaches to carve the time out i think and be receptive mm -hmm. now that i think about it when you've got that radio on because obviously you've got headphones and there's a uh, microphone input already like coming into the coach etc that might also be quite easy to like, record based off of that because you've already got uh, a stream of there are some really expensive systems that yeah. you can use but uh, we were just using a cheap one it we did it for three years i think i spent 50 quid on it um once you charged it up it would do like eight hours so you could do for like two or three or four almost a week's worth of sessions before needing to to do it again while we were sit when one session a day mm. but um yeah no it was it was uh it worked quite well for the for the for its use so we're talking about all this coxing advice and all this coxing knowledge and just in general from around the sport i want to reverse back to 12 years ago <laughs> when you first fell in love with the sport and like what that looked like for you um so i just really enjoyed the team dynamic of it, I would say, is kind of the people, the common shared goal with, you know, a relatively intimate number of people, whether it's a four or an eight, um, and sort of driving towards kind of one common thing. And I think, hey, it's the best and the worst thing about rowing, right? Like you need everybody to literally show up, otherwise you can't go rowing. Yeah. And, and it's that um mutual dependency but builds i think that forces relationships to build much quicker build a, like kind of this unity together and and i think it's really kind of the people that kind of got me into the love of the sport and i like i'm not gonna shy away from the fact that i'm unbelievably competitive and um i like competing and winning things as well like mm -hmm. i think um i think you know sometimes people shy away from the fact that they like they enjoy you know success and, and doing well but like, of course we do everyone does you mm. know and and I I remember um kind of just getting you know that you get those wins and you get those buzzes and you're like oh my gosh okay like and I want this and I want this and I think I think for me um it was trying to kind of better myself and improve myself and get better at it and um you know I was really encouraged in it by my coach back mm. then and and continuing so i mean so barry john Mulder was my coach he used to um uh row for i think he did you know low level kind of stuff africa stuff and then but you know came over coached the college and then ben reed who I literally bumped into in henley earlier today uh used to come over from wallingford and and um help our top crews out in the summer 
all the way through. Then I did the boat race and and that was a whole new ball game. And Christine Wilson and uh, Natasha Townsend kind of that stepped on for me, to be honest. They are incredible coaches, um, so invested in every individual athlete and getting the best out of them. And don't get me wrong, it was really tough. Like Christine is, you know, she's like a massive mentor to me now mm-hmm. still sort of scares me a tiny bit but in like the way that because I have so much respect for her as a person and what she built um at AWBC um and I think it is it's the people really it's the people combined with the winning that I think really really makes me love it <laughs> yeah and um, what also, year what year was the did the boat race did you do so I did 2014 so I actually did the last boat race last in, women's boat race at Henley yeah, Henley yeah, yeah yeah and it felt kind of really momentous to be honest um and i yeah i loved it kind of the athletes that i um was coaching um and coxing really good friends with um still to this day it's actually terrifyingly the next boat race is our 10 year like reunion and mm-hmm. you know when you're doing it you're like oh look at all these all these people coming back for reunions and now i'm like oh my gosh that's me um even thinking about about a five-year reunion i think gosh i've done a lot of life since then mm. um it's really cool and i think yeah it was an amazing kind of system to be a part of how did you find transitioning from bumps into obviously racing uh for oxford uh, the blue squad um terrifying um the commitment scared me uh if i'm honest uh yeah. and like Pembroke took it pretty seriously and then I was like oh okay and it was yeah. in my final year as well um so I was you know doing finals and, and all that sort of thing and it, it was it was nuts I definitely kept it on the download to my college as much as possible quite how much rowing I was doing <laughs> I remember meeting with the master's review and they'd kind of meet with all the students at the, in the first term and they'd seen that I wasn't really doing Pembroke stuff anymore and they were like we think this is really good that you're focusing on your work and I'm thinking that's because I'm spending all my time in Wallingford instead (laughs) please hold off that press release for as long as possible (laughs) and it was just yeah it was nuts and I think I think um yeah the commitment was terrifying um but kind of the lessons learned was huge and there was myself um and two of the coxes who were trialing Olivia and Beth and they I think that was maybe the first time that I really sort of realized, you know, there was like this sort of community of coxes. Like we were all really good mates. On training camp, we all shared a room. It was just really fun. Um, Beth then sort of didn't carry on from earlier in the um, earlier in the year. And then it was basically myself and Olivia. And it was really interesting. I think that was maybe the first time I was like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm quite good at this. Like, I think I've got something here. Because like Olivia was was an amazing cox who doesn't still cox anymore but she'd cox at St Paul's like mm. she'd she'd you know coxing through and through like all the way through the schooling system and so I was a big old underdog and I got the blue boat and, and she coxed to Cyrus and um you know she was also a massive lesson in you know being gracious in in defeat and mm-hmm. we still worked really well together and I think that taught some really good lessons as well about how I wanted to be as a cox as well. And you think that you think gave you the edge over an experienced cox? Um, I think I was quite exciting, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe because I hadn't gone through the kind of, here's how you do it, this is the blueprint, I I was winging it. Basically, I was flying by the seat of my pants. So nice. maybe sometimes I'd come out with things and they were like, what? Um, I definitely think where I was at disadvantage was my steering. Um, mm-hmm. it's something I had to work really, really hard on. And now I don't even think about it, obviously. But yeah. 
Um, steering is something that people don't really talk about very much because it's boring, but ultimately it's really flipping hard. Um, and actually, you know, steering the right line and feeling the water and giving feedback and blah, 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 you know, all the things is quite a lot. So Olivia was a lot more kind of consistent, I think, as I basically worked my butt off over kind of the course of, um, that kind of eight month trial period, I kind of managed to kind of get myself on top, but I Mm -hmm. think it is. It's the excitingness. I'm going to throw it out there that I don't think anyone is as spontaneous or exciting as Morgan, uh, Bayman Williams. I've listened to some of her recordings and I'm like, you absolute nutter. How did you win this race when you just <laughs> shouted at 12.50, you're a wizard, Harry. But like, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, she she really pulls on like in jokes and all these sorts of things to kind of really flip it around. And, and that's just, I mean, if you meet Morgan in real life, obviously I know you guys know her well. That's exactly who she is and she is, that is who she is when she's coxing as well. Um, so I would say that, yeah, I'm just like a less fun version of her. <laughs> I, think, I think Morgan is the trust. Like you build that in stuff is like such a trust thing. Like I've been coxing Henley campaigns and I unfortunately lost a couple of Henley finals with her. But um, like if you're 12.50 out and Morgan says, we need to go now, you're like, ah, shit. Yeah. We need to go. I don't, okay. I don't have another gear. You're a wizard, Harry. All right, let's go. Let's it's go. Fun. Yeah, but as she reads, she reads the reads the room really well. Yeah, mm. or or the river. Yeah. So being authentic is is so important, right? And I have a little saying. You know, different is better than better. So sometimes following the blueprint isn't necessarily the way mm. to get the top spot. And I think you've proved that with that. Yeah. I'm interested to, just quickly with steering. What is what made you struggle with steering? It's presumably having to steer whilst doing all the other things like if you only had to steer it wouldn't be hard no no. if you only steered um and i remember a very serious conversation with david tanner when i first joined the g-rank team a serious conversation with david tanner that's a i don't think there's anything that's to be fair i don't think any conversation (laughs) with him isn't serious (laughs) of that conversation and i remember um him just sort of saying to me and i was kind of very new on the team i was out in a viz with the women's squad he said, now ask, I want to ask you a question. Is so basically if if the rudder broke or the microphone broke, what would you prefer in the middle of a race? And I was like, well, microphone. Mm. And he was like, correct. And I was thinking, if I'd have got that wrong, would I have been cut? Like, <laughs> like what was what were the consequences of this conversation? But obviously I, I got the right answer, so we'll never know. But yeah, I, I think for me, where I really struggled with steering when I was first going is, it's, don't get me wrong, I could stay fantastically on the ISIS because you are the most reactionary rudder monkey there is. Mm. And um, you have to be super, super, super on it. Mm. But I actually struggled more in like really open, open lakes, um, new places because, you know, you're trying to fix on a point when it's just trees, they all look the same, mm. you know? Like, what yeah. am I looking at? Yeah. Um, I didn't particularly struggle. Like, I, one of my first, I think the first race I ever did off the ISIS with the OUW development squad was I just jumped straight into the booms and steered Henny Women's. And, you know, no crashing, never touched a boom, thankfully. Um, but, you know, I that was fine because you're steering off the booms. Um, it was kind of big open expanses. It was that training camp. We went out to Sabaudia, which is an amazing lake. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I remember Christy like stopping and being like, Aaron, look behind you. And you'd look and, you know, the trail of <laughs> like a little kind of snake <laughs> had been going along. And I was like, and even with the best one in the world, and you take your hands off, you still, you know, you're still reactive. But I got there in the end. It's exactly the same steering um, as and rowing as well, and the same thing. I um, right towards the end of my career, I actually got to that mystical point of like not having to think about it, like it just was happening. 
Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then uh, I remember a couple, probably not even a couple of years after I retired, um, jumping out in a pair and being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can steer. And then being like, awful. <laughs> I mean, like, this isn't something that you just keep. Like, you need to be doing it all the time. Like, it's yeah. a skill that you need to be, like, learning the whole time. Yeah, and it's just that awareness. And it's, it's, it's the ultimate kind of multitasking and things like that. And thankfully, yeah, I'm at, I'm at a point. I mean, not going to lie, Ballad 4 comes with its challenges, but it is easier to steer. It definitely is because where it's hard to steer when you first get in is because you, you can't see your peripherals, mm. right? So you you need to trust. Once you know how basically how long your blades are, um, you're all right. But obviously you can't see the blades behind you. So you need to make sure that you know you're safe and clear. Um, but you've got, you know, no one in front of you. And also, even if there is absolute chaos behind me, I can't see it. Um, whereas actually I can't tell you how distracting it is if you're, you know, you're trying to lead a build out or something like this and you can just see absolute carnage in front of you mm. with the four or eight rows you happen to be rowing at the time and steer and do all of those things. So yeah. I do think desensitizing it and removing removing the distractions helps in a bow loader yeah i mean i was just gonna say like what is the reason like that must be half of the reason for having a bow loader it's, not, it's certainly not aer like aerodynamics i don't think would come into it a lot slightly I think, I think it is a little bit more aero um and weight distribution yeah maybe. weight distribution and i also think um yeah it, it tends to be where i you know i think kind of the tom and the top shells and stuff are kind of all moving towards it and i, I do think it, it probably is it, it probably is better that you're just kind of down in the bows down the way like the downside i think of being in a bow loader is um yeah if you're if you're not if you have a good front end it's heavy <laughs> yeah. and uh i'm just weighing that down so especially in the winter when i'm like layered layered up you know in the summer like i've literally got a light crew on an advisor you're fine but in the in the winter i am i am you know very very much kind of tucked up in the warm so yeah i think i think it is it, it, it does help i find you know one of the downsides again of a bow loader is when you're in the midst of a race and if you're half a length up um it's harder to see so yeah. you need better comms between you and your bow person if someone's coming up back up on you or yeah. or whatever but I find that it means I'm more able to be more relaxed in my coxing because even if you're three quarters of the length up on the rest of the field, for example, when you're you're in an eight, you've still got the bow pair alongside you of multiple other boats and it feels a lot more frenetic and mm -hmm. you're like, you know, even your body language, you know, you see them and they're like, you know, tucked over, whereas I'm just lying down, like I am, you know, bracing, but I'm a lot more relaxed and I think I think that, leans better into my coxing because um it's allowed me i think to develop my coxing into a more relaxed style mm -hmm. um because i definitely was a little bit more uh let's go <laughs> yeah yeah well feeling the boat is like super important as a, as a cox because you need to like know what it's doing you need to like you can kind of feel the power curve as as, as you sit in the boat some coxes like to wear shoes some coxes like not to to you know mm -hmm. feel the action of the boat differently What's the difference between being in a bow lo loader and like sitting in front of a, the stem? Do you feel the movement or the power application differently or? Yeah, I think um, for me, I think it's better for your boat feel because you actually have to feel the boat and you have to know what's going on with your individual athletes as well and what they're working on um, to be able to maybe call them out. And particularly, you know, what's really useful for us, and I know it's not necessarily the same at all the clubs, is if you are outside of the boat, um, at parts in the season obviously in the winter a lot of time outside the boat i know what they're working on the coach is telling me or you need to be listening in so that 
you know, let's say you're feeling something and it's a little bit down on wherever, but you know that your three man's trying to work on getting a little more shape off the back turn. So you're like, okay, let's, you've got to do a bit more trial and error. I think you've got to be like, okay, let's try and, you know, let's tap down a little bit more off the back. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, okay, that's made a change. And here's, you know, and here's the feedback and stuff. Whereas I, I try and I think the the bad habits of a bow loader is you can end up just using all crew calls because normally you're relying on what you can see mm. and asking them to make technical changes oh, yeah. because it is harder to feel one person making a mistake so that's where you've got to really dial in with the coach whether that's when they're coaching live um or whether you know it's it's off the water and then with the feel really you've got it through your feet and through your kind of bum and your lower back in an eight um and whereas i'd say for me um not really in my feet like because you, you kind of stretched out into the back i'd say it's more like across my shoulders um, across my shoulders and my bum, basically, and what's in contact with the boat. But, you know, for any coxes who are listening out there, don't ever jump in a four where you can't touch the end um, because, um, you know, put something down there. Like I've got a very untechnical piece of foam that I created, which just looks like a, you know, a comedy cheese wedge, which goes down the bottom of the boat. And then I'd also say don't lock out your legs because then you lose that little bit of suspension and give. Mm-hmm. So I've got, again... Uh, you know those kind of like circular pieces of foam that you put on a bike when it's on a bike rack so it doesn't scratch something else or another bike? Just one of those underneath my knees. So I've got just a little bit of a break in my legs. So I've got a little bit of movement with the boat and that helps. And that that's helped me win three world championships and a games medal. So it doesn't need to be fancy, but yeah. make sure you can touch. You've got contact points with the boat. That's really interesting. Really interesting points. Yeah, and just a little shock absorber. Yeah. Just something that helps you from straight locking your legs out. Small things that like you just might never think about. Mm. Yeah. That's some golden advice right there. I imagine like <laughs> some people will go to their coach and be like, hey, can we get some foam and yeah. put that in the boat? Yeah, I just Hopefully. found it in Morris's workshop. Sorry, Morris. <laughs> like it's mine now. <laughs> Oh, Morris is listening, so he, I'm pr- pretty sure ne- next week you'll be called over for <laughs> a meeting. Told off. <laughs> he listens to some of them. I'm not sure he listens all, all the oh, way. Morris, through. if you want to make me a carbon fiber one, then I'll take it. <laughs> Lightweight. <laughs> um, cool. So um, I guess in like obviously stepping up into the boat race, still really enjoying enjoying that pressure, that extra um, part of it. Then so last year of uni, then sort of moving forward, did you think you wanted to take it on? Did what you did next was was based around that? No, entirely accidental, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So I was going to do a master's at Oxford, a procrastinate master's uh, to do another boat race <laughs> and to take the boat race onto the tideway. Um, I was going to be the president. I've been elected as the president, but I, I just didn't have um, the money, basically, because I... I needed to get a certain mark to get the funding mm. and I did not get to that mark. I got enough to kind of get in and do it, but it would have been a lot. And I was doing an archaeology master's. Um, I did history and English at uni. And uh, it's it's so expensive. <laughs> and it did get yeah. to a point where you're like, woohoo, this would be great. And then you're like, hang on a minute. I'm going to, it's just silly. You can't get a bank loan to go and mm. do a boat race. It's mm. silly. And I was a bit like, ah, is this going to work? And I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to, it's going to take a year um, because I actually had a job to go to EY um, and go be in the city because I panicked when I was in second year and did an internship and they gave me a job. So that's an awesome job. <laughs> it would have been good and I probably would have been living, I probably would have been living on the Fairmile right now, but um, <laughs> probably wouldn't be rowing. So Was that with Lane 4, Greg Sells? It wasn't with Lane 4. It was before the merge with Lane 4 because I'm old. But oh, okay. um, it was, I mean, to be honest, if I was working there, I'd be trying to push to work uh, in Lane 4. Um but yeah, and then so I had a year. Um, I was actually still doing some stuff with 
AW because obviously they sort of had planned that I would still be there. So I was sort of helping some of their newer coxes. I did force head with them in the head of the Charles, which was amazing. But then obviously I needed to kind of pull back and find my own thing. And uh, Morgan, Ben Williams, um, Morgan and I have literally bounced cross paths for years and years. Um, and she basically was like, you should come to Leander. And Okay, so this is before obviously she did Brooks but came to Leander. Exactly. And uh, she was here and she was at that point um, sort of doing a bit of dabbling with... What year? So that would have been 2014-15 season. Yeah, yeah. So the... We, right, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we, we were together, together yeah. and yeah, we, and that was when she was um, basically doing some stuff with TV rowing team. Um, sort of, this is obviously in the pre Rio time um, with, you know, again, Zoe de Toledo, who's another walks mentor. Um, and yeah, so she sort of brought me down to Teleander, um, which is obviously quite an unconventional time because obviously it was kind of just before Christmas. Um, you know, the start of the season, everyone's sort of like, why don't you come at the start of the season? And I was thinking, I didn't even know. I, I don't know. I didn't know that this was happening. And so that's why you appeared in the middle of the season. I just turned up. But... What knowledge did you have of Leander? Did you, were you, had you got, had you kind of started geeking out on rowing yet or not no, really? I yeah. say I'm still not, I'm not really rowing geek to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I think this is the coming to it late sort of thing. So I think it was probably a good thing because I came in yeah. full, full naivety. Yeah. Um, I had only been, uh, I, I still maintain, I love Leander, but I would say I've never really been a club rower because Leander's not like, mm. you know, your club. It's <laughs> it's different. It's in, We were talking about it before we press record about that. Yeah. I, you know, you, you're there and all of a sudden you realize who, who you're coxing and who's there. And then I, I remember being in the changing rooms and um, Anna Watkins just came in. And I remember being like, like, <laughs> what? And she was, that was when she was sort of trying to come back. And as classic Anna, was just lovely chatting to people. And, oh, you know, it was just sort of, yeah. yeah. That was when I started to be like, oh, okay. And I remember the first thing I did with Leander was, um, again, because Morgan had, I think she got taken out to a viz. I jumped in and coxed the kind of ladies plate eight against Oxford in a, boat race fixture so this that probably is when you cox me yeah and i remember it was in and i remember just thinking like flipping heck and obviously i knew all the ubc boys and they're like what are you doing here and then i was like oh, okay there's a lot of people to impress here <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like my new club my ex club like oh stressful yeah mm -hmm. and stan ludis was stroking the other oh, eight yeah. and i had chris body was stroking our one and i just remember I don't think we won any, but I think it was close. And I think it was closer than we expected. And I managed to bully their cocks out of, the, out of the racing line. So I was happy. What year was that? Was that the year that Trenton messed it all up? Uh, no, remember. that was yeah. 2012. Oh, yeah, no, that was it. Yeah, a little bit earlier. Yeah. Huh. I, know, <laughs> I, I can't, because yeah, I remember that year, yeah, we lost everything to Oxford. and No, we lost everything to Cambridge and no, the other way around, yeah. Yeah, that's right. yeah. And so that's why I put a, bit, a lot of money on and he cost me a lot of money. <laughs> But um, no, I'm pretty sure. I say I can't specifically uh, remember being coxed by you, but that rings rings bell. Because that that would have been 2015, uh, early 2015, yeah. right? And at that point, you were still in retirement. No, I, no, I came, back. You came back. You came back about March, April, yeah, end of March. Yeah, maybe yeah, I wasn't in really, that boat. I mean, it was incredibly confusing when you came back because also we had um, Tim Clark. Yeah, yeah. Tom Ford <laughs> and then Tom Clark turns up and I'm like oh my gosh and to me also they all look the same <laughs> uh, they're, all, they're all just 
getting in the way of what I can see. Yeah, I can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that must be difficult as a cox. I always, I always remember uh, Chrissy uh, used to find me up in uh, my Thames Cup year that everyone else was like a single name only, but I was always referred to as Tom Clark in the boat. And I was like, there's not even two Toms. <laughs> I guess it just, I guess it was just her way. Yeah. You just learn people's name. Like that's how you do it. Yeah. It's so funny. I used to early doors when, you know, you jump into new eights. I always think it's good as a cox to use their names mm. if you can. Mm. And, you know, um, using pairs and fours and things like that. But, you know, backing things up with names. Um, but like I used to remember um, basically memorizing the, the crew list. But I... So I could call them by their name in the boat, but I remember then we get out and I'm like, oh, I've got no idea. Yeah, <laughs> so where are you sat in the three seat? Oh, great. Then your name's Tom. Cool. <laughs> I still feel bad as a, from a coach's point of view as well, because like you get like 60 new athletes at the start of the year. So the eights go out like, I'm I'm doing numbers. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm doing numbers. But then they they only learn your name. So yeah. then like two months later, everyone knows your name and you're still like, I feel really bad now. Yeah. I don't know anyone's name. You still, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, two set. Who was in the two set? Did yeah. yeah. That's that's the saving grace in the boat is that you can use the use yeah, numbers. You can use the numbers. So that's a really funny situation that you found yourself in. Obviously, racing against your old club with your new club, surrounded mm-hmm. by athletes who are, you know, just pretty much GB development center, like yeah. you said, not not a club rowing kind of club. And yeah, obviously, it's you learn so much from being in that atmosphere of having Olympians around you, people who go to world championships, everyone's just striving for excellence daily. Uh, it's nice to hear that also like Anna Watkins is like very supportive. We're in the process of like getting her onto the podcast as well. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be cool to, to talk about. But um, how quickly would you say you managed to like settle into Leander? Because obviously it's very, very different to the Oxford College rowing system. It's mm. almost like a completely different side of the sport. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was living at my mum and dad's, which is in Wantage. So I was driving, it's about 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was, was going to do. I had a job um, and I was traveling um, kind of all over the world. Um, basically, was supporting um, state school students getting into Oxford and Cambridge. But we kind of funded these programs by running international summer schools in Oxford and Cambridge for kind of more affluent families who wanted their kids to get, get the Oxbridge experience. So it was an absolute... I mean, it was an amazing job because I basically got to go to these incredible countries, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, the States, mm. uh, Dubai, to, you know, these amazing schools and then see the money going to state schools in the UK that really, really needed it. And Ernst and Young called me that like summer and was like, are you coming next year? You haven't signed your contract. I was like, I'm going to defer another year. <laughs> and then I deferred another year. And I just really, really got into it. There was a really great group of women at Leander. I ended up kind of, I was with the ladies play eight for kind of the initial bit but then when kind of Morgan came back I then kind of moved towards the women's side of the program because this was actually I think the first year they had proper club women's eight um and we did kind of the summer racing yeah. so that was you know Catherine Douglas, Fee Gammond, um Emily, Carmichael. Trudell, Emily Carmichael, Emily Ashford you know all people who Rupert I Whittaker. yeah all yeah. people kind of who kind of came um and kind of into the gb system in and around when when i did you know some people retired and um yeah it was really great it was really great kind of soft launch i think into kind of that world because um you know i was working with the ladies play eight and that was really big competitive group at that time and and then part of that development that development group so it, it kind of yeah, I, I basically moved into, of course, Upton Close uh, for the summer. <laughs> that's nowhere else to live. Oh, that's where every, if you haven't lived in Upton Close, are you a real? Um, and um, I moved into there in the summer and then 
um, the Townsend, so Tasha Townsend, who had coached me at Oxford, um, and her husband, Sam Townsend, he was still rowing uh, in the GB rowing team in the quad. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for a lodger. Um, and, you know, we'd stayed really good mates with them kind of when I'd graduated. So I moved in with them up in Tokus Green. And it was it was lovely. It was so, so nice. And I think because I was, you know, similar age, obviously, to some of um, the, my fellow kind of women. But I kind of was that at that point because it was all to take in a gap year. And then I'd taken, you know, that wasn't really a gap year. It was just the start of life after university. Um, it felt like a gap year at the time. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, by then, 24, 25, like, I'd, I'd been with my boyfriend since I was 17. He's now my husband. And, like, I wasn't that keen to kind of move into student digs sort of vibes. And so mm-hmm. it was perfect. And the Townsends were amazing. And so I lived there for three years. Um, very briefly lived somewhere else before I kind of moved to Henley um, with my husband when we got married. And so it was, yeah, it was ideal, really. I kind of, yeah, I really, really enjoyed my time at Leander. And I sort of then did another season with them and that's when I started kind of getting headhunted for GB stuff yeah that was that was a great time to join that, that was the same year so we joined Leander in the same year and like I remember that ladies plate was light, lightning fast and yeah also like I totally forgot that that was the first year that we had the proper proper mm-hmm. women's eight yeah I think that's probably I think it might still be the fastest Leander eight we put down a time at like met in obviously good conditions mm-hmm. you have to have some good conditions mm. I think we were like 29 or 531 or something might have been the fastest ever Leander. Maybe it's been beaten by now, but yeah, like just like, you know, bunch, like you said, Tim Clark, Sam Arnott, Callum McBriarty, Chris Body, like just some big, big names. Big lads. And they were just, everyone was just really lovely. Like I do just remember like the rosters, they were both around and, um, I remember, I mean, I, I hadn't coxed men's aids ever really. I'd done a bit at college, but not, not kind of for longer periods. And, and that was really nice. And I think, um, you know, I, I'd say there's a lot of, there's a lot of stereotypes, a lot of, you know, easy questions that you haven't fallen into that you do get asked of like, oh, what was it like being a woman coxing a men's aid and all that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, depends on the men, just as mm-hmm. it does in the same way as what's it like working in this environment? Well, it depends on my colleagues. Like it's, it's so flexible, but I do remember like going up to, one of the boys was living in Bix and we did a big Christmas party and it was just like everyone cooked everyone it was just there was just good fun and don't get me wrong there was a lot of there was a lot of banter a lot of messing around but like I just it was really really fun I really did enjoy it I think time. it's like what you said it's the common goal thing isn't it you know we all are here we're all pushing we're all trying to make the best of ourselves and it's just such a great environment to be in yeah it's really it's one of the things I probably miss most about rowing it's a I'm breakfast club that you row around, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, I do miss the Leander breakfast from back oh, then. So good. So, I think we were there at the OG time of breakfast. Yeah, well. quite possibly. Oh, hang on, hang Tom, on, hang Tom, on. Tom, oh. Tom oh. <laughs> I started in 07 when porridge was a penny. Okay, right. Well, whatever. Giant porridge was a penny. You used to get, a penny? Yeah, eggs <laughs> were 5p, sausages and bacon were 10p each. All right. Okay. Toast was free, cereal was free, milk was free, tea and coffee was free. But okay, did you have that, but did that. you have six Polish chefs? <laughs> so there was a few, yeah. definitely. There was six when I worked there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when I remember um, uh, when I kind of I joined and um, basically I would go and uh, like you know you kind of you, you basically for anyone who didn't know like what you'd do is you'd like swipe your membership card and you'd would topped it up and you could pick what you wanted and stuff um, and then it would kind of get brought up to you and. Um, 
I know, appreciate it. everyone's probably thinking, all right, yeah, very nice. And we get it. It was, it was, it was pretty rare. And I remember though, like you could get boiled eggs, but no one ever ordered boiled eggs because, you know, everyone's ordering bazillion calories of whatever. We'll see, I didn't need that. And, um, and I remember I, I ordered boiled eggs. One of the kind of people came up and thought, oh, they don't, they don't like, they don't really like to do boiled eggs basically because it's done to order and stuff. And I was like, oh, right, okay, yeah, no, 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 and then just got scrambled eggs or whatever. And then um, when we went out to Rio, um, the chef went out um, with Debbie Flood and a couple of people I went out to watch in Rio, basically by accident, because I balloted for a load of tickets with a load of mates to go watch, you know, Sam T and uh, Stan mm-hmm. and Aludis was racing. And stuff. No one got anything and I just got everything I balloted for. And so my husband and I were like, should we just go? <laughs> and so we did and it was amazing. But anyway, he came out as well to... Um, uh to Rio and we kind of all hung out a lot and became friends and anyway when I came back he was maybe boiled eggs and everyone was like how did you get them I was like don't ask you just got to be mates with the shit (laughs) (laughs) to to give a little bit of context for those that know so Leander Club is a rowing club but it also is a fully functioning restaurant so the reason why generally the the athletes in certain forms over the years have access to cooked food is because basically there's this kitchen that's working for a restaurant already and then sort of on the side they can help help the athletes um it's yeah like different versions but yeah it's still i'm not saying it's not bougie like it was amazing <laughs> yeah. i think everyone understood that it was amazing um but they didn't it's not just like a a, no. a fully staffed kitchen no. for just athletes for only yeah. i mean the, the there is like a separate section for athletes so i remember like sometimes we'd like make prep for breakfast the next day and you just throw in 120 eggs into a massive bucket two liters of double cream mix it all together and they get that scrambled eggs for the next day. Like that's so much food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big, big time. trays and trays and trays. And the desserts. Should I talk about sticky toffee pudding? <laughs> oh, don't. I miss it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so good. Uh, um, yeah. So you kind of briefly touched on, like you said, to, towards the end of the, that ne- that next sort of block of two or three years, you started getting picked up um, to be interested in you in 2017. Yeah. You had a little brief in the, in the women's day. Yeah. It was, it was a bit nuts to be honest. Like I, so I basically got asked by Shep to kind of, they were starting doing a bit of a development program. It was, you know, it's now a lot more structured. Um, but it was sort of what now would be, you know, they talked about project Paris mm. getting ready for Tokyo. Mm. And now it's, I don't know, some sort of catchy name for LA. It's, it's those athletes who are maybe beyond under 23s. Mm and or maybe come back to their clubs for various reasons. Maybe they got injured at the wrong time and all of that and didn't, weren't necessarily going to go to the games. But obviously, really competitive, really good athletes. And so they put together, you know, it's the start of the project really with a woman's head um, eight. And I got asked to cox that. And to be honest, it really came out of nowhere for me. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it basically became sort of me and then Matilda Horn, um, who uh, obviously ended up, being part of the women's program and taking those women's eight to the Olympics, um, we basically kind of shared that eight um, throughout the summer. And that was kind of my first like, ah, okay, this is interesting. Like maybe this is kind of a career path that could work for me. Um, Ernst Young called me again to see why I had turned up at work. Yeah, and I basically (laughs) was like, I'm not coming. Um, And, um, you know, I was sort of like, got to that point where I'm like, oh, this is, is, you know, something I really want to pursue and stuff. So, Basically, after Rio, um, I was the spare for the Paralympics. Um, Matilda was spare for the Olympic Women's Eight. And we both basically got invited into Capsham after Rio. And what then ensued was probably the hardest 10 months of trialing of my entire life. And I've, you know, Matilda, another walks mentor, um, she would uh, agree because we literally 
we trialed for that whole summer, the whole the whole time, you know, ev- both of us in every day. And I think, again, you know, some of the lessons learned from the boat race and, um, you know, from Morgan. Morgan basically invited me into Leander as a direct competitor, being like, you should come to this club. It's really good. Morgan's you know? not scared. Exactly. But like, we shouldn't be. And this is why, you know, this is yeah. why I want Coxes to kind of do more rather than being like, oh, maybe you should try out pretends you know it's 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 bringing people in and so Matilda and I just work really really well together and I think we both really kind of we just we we brought really different things to the table to be honest and and um so I I was in the women's eighth program so I coxed them at the European Championships we came fourth um which was very frustrating um and uh then at Henley uh where we lost to the Kiwis by two two thirds of a length but it was the closest we got to the kiwis all all year so mm-hmm. it was a win but a loss because it's henley um and yeah and then and then she cocks them at the two world cups um and we basically it was really tight um and basically I, I didn't get the boat and that was it was really tough hindsight is a wonderful thing and i look back and think that matilda was the best cox for that boat i think that we both brought really really different things and she really technical uh is very calm very um yeah she's just she's just really clear really concise and you know it was kind of quite a fizzy boat of personalities and she really was the sort of antidote to that and in a really positive way Mm -hmm. and so i actually you know whilst it was absolutely devastating when you don't get the crew and then you think what now um i do think she was the right person for the boat and so yeah, that was, you know, probably like the toughest, toughest time I'd had in rowing was basically after that summer, is that summer of 2017, you know, they went to um, the world champs. I think they came fourth or fifth, but literally like all top five boats in the women's A final was all within half a length or something. And it was wow. amazing. It was such a great race. Um, and it's it's really hard as a cox then. Like Matilda and I were both fighting over an empty seat because Zoe de Toledo had retired. Mm-hmm. And then you know, we're going into the next season. And by this point, the uh, weight for Coxes had been um, neutralized by FISA. So basically, you could Cox men, Cox women, um, you know, you could swap basically the opposite genders, but also it was just 55 kilos across the board. Um, What was it before? 50. Okay. Yeah. And so... Yeah, 50 for women, 55. 55 for men, but it made it 55 across the board. And then that also sort of meant that into year two of the cycle, uh, Morgan had kind of taken a bit of a step back after she hadn't made the Rio boat and 55 um, kilos because Morgan had kind of found sometimes making weight just a little bit detrimental to her health. That brought her back into the mix. And so all of a sudden you've got a situation where Morgan's an unknown, but, you know, on paper... Matilda's beating me so I'm looking at being like well if I if I was GB rowing right I'd be trialing Morgan against Matilda like because and then I'm out of the picture mm-hmm. and 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 well that sucks I that's logical you know and, and like where does this leave yeah, me yeah. um and the tough thing about you know selection in early of the Olympics is you're looking being like okay <laughs> that's quite a long time to wait you know and what, what am I going to do um and that was when I Especially as a cox, because there's there's no there's nowhere else. There's no second boat. That's what I said. It's a really shallow, really shallow pyramid. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I um was kind of considering my options and thinking about the para squad, but it was very much in my own head. I haven't really talked to many people about it, and just wondering whether that might be an option for me to trial. 
But they just won the world championships by like 17 seconds. Who, who had been coxing there in the post? So Rio? in the Rio era, it was a guy uh, called Ollie. Mm. Um, and then a girl called Anna Corduroy had um, come into the boat. But the boat had been formed relatively late in the season. So it wasn't kind of like a really long trialing process. Mm. Um, and I was sort of like, a, I don't know, are they going to be like, well, they ain't broke. You know, like, why do we need yeah. to trial? This person's an incumbent world champion. And I bumped into Foxy, James Fox, in Sainsbury's in Henley. <laughs> and I said, look, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And he was like, absolutely. Like, you know, the, the trialing is still open. As it was still open in the women's squad, but I'd sort of been through it, you know? So, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And then, yeah, their coach called me a couple of days later being like, why haven't you emailed me yet? <laughs> was that Tom or? Nick. Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. You didn't work with Tom Dyson. I did, I did. And I ended up, I went to basically have a meeting actually with Nick and Tom very early days when I was going to trial. And um, they basically kind of had a bit of a chat, found a bit about me. And they said very bluntly, you know, essentially if if the women's squad turn around and say, oh, we made a mistake or this person's ill, we want you to jump in, would you would you do it? And I was like, no, because I was sort of like, I'm, very, I'm a very loyal person. And I was a bit like, I'm not gonna I'm not, I'm not gonna step away because I think the para squad not now at all but maybe a little while back might have been seen as the sort of second best or mm-hmm. or um you know a backup and stuff and and you know for me it's it's never been the backup of my career it's been the making of my career yeah um and it's a squad that I'm really proud to be a part of and so yeah it was it was kind of fair play to them for having that conversation with me and I'm pretty sure they did it with everyone else who's interested in trialing. Yeah, they wanted to see a commitment. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And you want yeah, you want people who are passionate about it, not someone who's like, ah, I guess. Yeah. 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 Oh, and this is a backup. Absolutely. You don't want that uh entire competition to be used as a development. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then lose them when they decide they want to do something else. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I am um, I went to the same school as Tom Dyson. Ah. Oh. Obviously if you, he his last year was my first year of rowing. Yeah. But we had the same rowing coach. So um, oh, okay. every year, generally every year at Henley, that rowing coach will um, come down on like the Wednesday or Thursday mm-hmm. and we'll go out for dinner. So for quite a few dinners with Tom Dustin, which was really funny when he was coach of the Paralympic team and I was rowing in the GB team. Yeah. I was like getting like some inside knowledge <laughs> from some one of the coaches. really like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tom Dyson is... Shout out. Yeah. Oh, what? Uh, he's, he's, yeah, another kind of coach who's been, I'd say like really formative in um, my career, but also sort of like, the way that I want to operate in a high performance environment. He is unbelievably fair. Um, he is really considered and yeah, so he he was the chief coach of the power squad. Mm-hmm. He never kind of directly coached me on a on the you know regular basis as my crew coach, but obviously I experienced his coaching loads um and his leadership all the way through, you know, COVID was rough, mm-hmm. uh was really, really hard and he got us all not just to the start line healthy, but, you know, became the, the top rowing nation there as well. And and he's now basically moved up yeah. to be the Paralympic Performance Director. And he works very much kind of alongside Louise, the the Performance Director for kind of the whole Olympic and Paralympic program. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad because, you know, I would have hated to lose him to another another sport, let alone another nation. Yeah, I uh, saw him last year when that, that rowing coach actually retired. We met up, uh, we went for a little road back, back down our school and... Mm. Uh, I said, oh, you know, how's how's it going? And he was like, well, it was billed as a nine to five. <laughs> it is not a nine to five. I mean, Tom is 
one of the hardest workers so yeah. you could give him like a you know factory job that was nine to five and he'd be taking bits home to go and work on it in his own time he's he can't let anything go so yeah he's, yeah yeah he's, he works hard uh cool yeah so then um 2018 obviously you then trial and get selected mm -hmm. fall on yeah. the right side difficult yeah. long long yeah we basically yeah. trialed the whole the whole year pretty much again um very different vibe when you are trialing for a seat that is filled directly against someone else, you know, who is, you know, you're literally trying to unseat them. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, Matilda and I at least were trying to trial mm -hmm. for a seat that had well, was empty. Mm -hmm. Um and then Harry Brightmore trialed in, in my season as well, along with some other people. Sasha uh was going to trial for a bit as well. Another oh, one's yeah. mentor. We've all sort of been We've all crossed our paths. Oh, there's a common theme here. Yeah, <laughs> I know. High performance. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically it ended up being uh, by the kind of new year, they kind of narrowed it down to myself and the incumbent to basically trial for the seat. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of pressure. Um, I was also kind of aware, you know, this was sort of my in my last chance saloon sort of thing if i wanted to kind of compete for gb yeah um yeah i i basically had gone back to leander for a couple of months sort of before pro proper trialing with the power squad and and whilst it was it was great it it was you know i'd had a taste of that kind of gb yeah lifestyle and and what the opportunities that were there and i was kind of I think, although I hadn't kind of, you know, set it in stone, if I hadn't got the power seat, I think, you know, it probably would have been the end of my high-level competitive career. I probably would have mm -hmm. finished off the season. But, you know, I, I I think that the best athletes, and this is from, you know, every stage through to the top, top level, have something else in their life going on. You know, I don't think, I think you need context. And that can be your work, that can be a hobby, that can be whatever, because I think that provides light and shade everything you do all you do is row and all you care about is rowing when you have a bad day it'll be really really dark and the context of your really bad day might just be an actual not that great 30 minutes <laughs> like not great 30 minute death actually, exactly and, and like you can really dwell where you have other things going on and perspective exactly and so for me i think you know having something else and and you know i i I don't know what I would have got on to do, but like I loved studying. I love history. Yeah. Um, if I hadn't done that, basically, I wouldn't have necessarily stayed in rowing and done what would have been, obviously, a five-year cycle. Who knew? Yeah. To kind of wait yeah. for the next games to maybe get in, but maybe not. Like, same could happen. Again. Absolutely. If you let it, you can get so lost in the sport. So mm -hmm. having something else going on that kind of like also marks the timeline is mm -hmm. really important. So now that you've been selected for the Paralympic squad, how would you say the training was different from uh, full-time rowing at Leander, obviously then to, to training at Paralympics? Like, do they follow a similar structured program? Maybe they do more underwater stuff, less off the... I, I have no idea how yeah, it works. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, you probably look at a para training, training program and you could literally copy it and do it at Leander and probably go and do really well at Henley. Like, it literally looks yeah. exactly the same. I'd say the biggest difference is, so basically I'll kind of break down para rowing a little bit for mm -hmm. people who might not know. There's basically three classifications. There's PR, para rowing, one, two, and three. Um, and the easiest way to think about it is basically what body parts you are using. So PR1, which is kind of our highest level of disability, you're essentially using your arms and you've got maybe, a, you can kind of use your lats and traps and the top, 
top of your back, but you've generally got, um, you, you will be using a wheelchair almost, mm -hmm. almost always. Um, but you basically have massively impaired hip function to no function at all. Um, and essentially it's just, and you're, you're basically, you're in a seat and that's where you'll see the floats. Pretty strapped in from strapped, here, yeah. Yeah, strapping it kind of across the chest. And that's where you'll see the floats on either side as well. And then you've got PR2. Um, so that's always a single. PR2 is uh, the international boat class at the games is a double and it's a mixed double. So one guy, one girl. Mm -hmm. And they've got hip function. So you may see some of the athletes in wheelchairs, but some might also walk and be kind of double leg amputees or something like that. Um, and then you've got PR3. Um, and that's probably the widest kind of catchment field. But fundamentally, we row in, in a normal, non-modified boat, um, which, and you use your legs, trunk, hips and arms. So you kind of have, in general speaking, quite a low level of disability. Um, there's sort of, you know, you probably walk past people in the street, probably wouldn't really necessarily know that they have a disability. So that's visual impairment, um, might have kind of mild cerebral palsy, uh, one of the girls in the squad, um, it's generally kind of foot and ankle. So Foxy had fused ankles. Um, G ha was in a car accident and kind of um, kind of lost half of her foot um, when she was doing it. So it's 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 basically, you know, if you saw us rowing and training along, you'd think, oh, mixed boat, that's random. But you wouldn't probably have much more of an awareness. Yeah. Um, so our training program is very, very similar. Our PR3 athletes, uh, you can row at the games in a Cox 4. Or actually now, very excitingly, there's a mixed double as well that you can compete in. So we've got an extra boat. But generally speaking, um, yeah, our training program is very similar. I'd say kind of the only thing that you probably notice is um, our mileage is probably a little bit less on average. Um, so, you know, our long sessions, we're talking 14, 16 Ks rather than the new 20, 24 Ks mm -hmm. of the senior program. But, you know, weights is the same, ergo is the same. The only thing is we don't do 30 minute tests. Um, partly because of kind of the physiological strain that puts under particularly athletes who are in, if they're erging and they're having to be kind of strapped in ergos yeah. and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so instead we do um, kind of in the GB team kind of an alternative test, which is sort of replicates the 30 minutes. It's a similar kind of um, strenuous, yeah, yeah, not yeah. fun thing to do. I was going to say, <laughs> you, don't, you don't do half hour, 30 minute uh, uh, raid 20 because you like your back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got to protect those. So um, yeah, but like the training prize is really similar. So, you know, we, the other thing that the para squad do, which is a GBRT thing, not necessarily anything else, but we tend to have Thursdays as cross training days, um, which okay. is just the opportunity to go do other things that might be swimming, cycling, um, you know, you still need to train, but it gives you a bit of freedom and flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not gonna lie, it's great as a cox because it gives me a little day in the in the in the day. We're filming today on a Thursday because I have a lot more flexibility. So that's actually really nice for yeah. me as well. Um, but I often go with, you know, the athletes if they're going climbing or we're going doing something else, because it, it just breaks things up and I think I think that's something that's quite good as well. Yeah, it's cool. Coversham can get very samey. Mm -hmm. so yeah that's, uh, that's... and 2k lake is just like same old so oh, yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot of a lot of spinning yeah yeah, yeah yeah i've always found a sort of the fascination i guess for um being involved in in power rowing is in rowing rowing as a coach you have who are, all your athletes bodies work in exactly the same way mm. your bodies all work like this and we're going to row like this whereas when you bring in the extra like level of difficulty to come and say like 
all of your bodies do something quite different here, mm. but we all want to try and do the same thing. And it's like, how do we work that out? How do we make this person do that? And it's they're not the same yeah. uh, disabilities at all either as well. So I'm, I mean, what's that like? Is that just stressful but fun but rewarding and a bit of everything all at the same yeah, time yeah I, I don't i don't think you find it particularly stressful but i think that's partly because i'm just so used to it now mm. um but i think for me it keeps me on my toes yeah i think the biggest kind of concern i have with the cocks generally particularly you know i've been in the system for a long time so it becomes stale you know just saying mm. the same thing that people aren't really listening anymore and all of that and um, I don't think you, it's quite hard to become stale when you've got kind of new athletes with new impairments and, and, you know, I'm, I would say I'm a, I'm a rigging master because you've got to figure out, you not only got a mixed crew, so you need to basically, how are we setting up blades and spans and inboards and all of the sort of things? So you're not taking on all loads of load and you're just not washing out early and how are we kind of figuring that out? And then you've got inside the boat itself, um, you know, every setup is really, really individualized. Um, because fundamentally someone with food ankle can't just turn up and jump in a boat. Um, if you actually look at any images or videos of us rowing in the combination that ended up rowing in Tokyo, you would be kind of forgiven for thinking Foxy is seven foot five because <laughs> he has fused ankles. So he used to row on a plus, um, sometimes 15, but most often 20 seat with three seat pads. Um, his, and so if you imagine then, how do you possibly find height for him? So he's basically, he, we needed loads, loads, loads more seat to feet height. Yeah, You needed his heels to be as far down as him to be as high up as possible. But then obviously, how do you make the rigger work for you? So there were trucks under his rigger that lifted yeah. his rigger up so we can create more height. And then he had a, basically an unbelievably kind of shallowed off foot plate. Um, and then we put extra layers of carbon fiber at the bottom of the boat because you can imagine basically his heel is dinking on the bottom of a boat a lovely little new carbon fiber boat we're like you're not going to basically you just push a hole into it so yeah all these sorts of things yeah. you know you, you've got to be you've got to be really on it so put it this way seat racing is pain oh, in the butt changing these setups within you know a fixed period of time so we've got the fairness and things yeah. like that so, yeah oh it's, it's like it's, all yeah. hands on deck yeah but also like all hands on deck that I trust to do it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, was going to make a joke about seat racing, but no, you actually do have yeah. a time constraint. And, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 one of those, and so that's that's why I think it's 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 great, and that's why I you know think particularly with PR three athletes, where there is absolutely no reason why PR three athletes shouldn't be rowing in clubs, um, and it be made possible for them to do so, like. And I think that's definitely something that, you know, big shout out, I would say Molsey and Agecroft are kind of leading in the clubs at the moment for having, in particular, PR3 athletes. But you've got Maidenhead, who've also got some PR3 athletes, but also some mm -hmm. PR2s and PR1s and Marlow as well, mm -hmm. who are basically just facilitating rowers um, from all disabilities. And, and I think it's really, really important. There are some fundamental things and access needs that you do need if you are PR2 or PR1. Yeah. Particularly, um, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge for them to run the tideway, for example, because it's tideway, uh, tidal. Mm. You need to be able to access a dock. <laughs> yeah. There's no kind of getting into the boat and, and, and stuff in Putney, oh, for example. No way then, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of those considerations, but it's completely doable. It's just kind of just just opening their minds a little bit more because fundamentally... I think, um, you know, I'm kind of using Ben Pritchard, who's our PR1 athletes kind of um, example, is he loves rowing 
as a wheelchair user, he used to be a, a semi-pro cyclist and had an accident whilst in a race. Um, and he loves rowing because as a wheelchair user, a lot of um, para sport, you do it in a modified wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Whereas for him, he leaves his wheelchair on the dock and just rows off. And oh. it's something, it's really freeing. It's something that really different. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's kind of a real draw to our sport for people who are particularly in wheelchairs um, who can go out and do it. So I do think it's it's really cool. I also think that's actually a major benefit if you're a PR uh, one rower is that you uh, don't have to row on the tideway. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can just hear them now. Oh, no. What a nightmare. <laughs> we'll row on the Thames. <laughs> yeah, but it's stuff that you don't even think about. Like, it's, yeah. you know, when you're walking through a city and you see a set of stairs and there's no ramp or anything, like, sometimes it takes a second to catch yourself and be like, huh, how do people... Yeah in a wheelchair get, get up there yeah. and then and then you see okay there's there's a lot more accessibility um being provided and i think i think that's really important because if if we have more competition the standard's going to improve mm -hmm. right and these people will still love to enjoy the sport like i think i obviously have no experience in this but like if if i if i was disabled like I think I would have to do something. So, like, it's. I think it's amazing that um, that these people like have access to sport and to kind of like be able to express their competitive spirit and also like share passion with others um, in similar scenario. Yeah, totally. And I and I think as a Paralympic program, you know, talking about Tom Dyson, he he basically has been at the helm of the program and now is kind of his performance director level. You know, it's 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 the GB setup is is unmatched by anyone else and yeah. and definitely is a, is a massive reason behind our success um i'd say what's really exciting and a bit scary is you know the rest of the world are catching up and moving on and it's mm -hmm. it's really interesting because almost watching our sport um and the way it's developed over the last 10 15 years and you know the rest of the world catching up is very much almost like you know when funding first came in for the Olympic rowing program and now you know everyone else is also doing the same and and I think it's really exciting and I think as a Paralympic program we really really benefit from the fact that we share Cavachon with the Olympic program yeah and we and I would say it is a really reciprocal relationship you know like we 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 do share things and, and vice versa and and we share resources and coaches and and all those sorts of things and I think that that does really help and um yeah and I think definitely again over the last couple of cycles is is the kind of i think respect for the paris squad and what we do and what we've achieved particularly i think you know we there's no hiding the fact that you know gb had a bit of a fallow period um after the amazing successes of, of london and rio and there were some amazing athletes and um amazing performances but still you know it wasn't potentially kind of the gold rush era that we'd had in previous cycles yeah, yeah. um but all credit to kind of tom dyson and nick and stuff because you know, the power four was kind of consistently still winning those gold medals. So I think there was an element of that's amazing that we're still doing that. And, you know, we're not doing things wrong. We've just, Louise actually said it relatively recently, but, you know, obviously generally speaking, and this is the same in any sport, in any nation, almost the, the more success you have, sometimes the bigger your retention problem is yeah. after a major competition. Yeah. Because people are happier to move on yeah. than if they're like, ah, oh, so close. <laughs> I'll give it one more go. Yeah. Um, 
and so yeah i think i think we really benefit as, as a paralympic program and and we're kind of very we, we recognize that and also as a sport as well you know we have the same world champs you have the same european champs all those sorts of things it brings more eyes on the sport yeah it's awesome yeah i think it's 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 really good and some people can say oh you know you've got more than everyone else it's like you but someone's got to lead the way mm. you know and if we want to push this sport on we want to make it more poor from it uh, more professional then you know like kudos to gb rowing for doing those things for for keeping it together um and i think you know i love what hugo said after uh after brooks's massive henley it was like it's not our fault we're fast like yeah. it's, it's up to you to catch up now like at the yeah. end of the day and I think it is what it is. Yeah, and it's being, you know, I'm relatively unapologetic about mm -hmm. it. And, and you know, you love the little media stuff you do straight off the pontoon and they're like, doesn't get boring winning. You're like, no, <laughs> no, of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Like, that's what we go out to do when we train. We don't train like world champions, I would say, you know, as in we train like, you know, we're silver medalists and pushing to be world champions. I like, love that. You don't, you kind of, you, you once you kind of finish that season it is a bit of a slate clean and everyone comes in and everyone graphs because that's the only reason that we end up being successful and and you know don't get me wrong we've had some we've had some close calls and like 27 uh 2018 sorry my first world championships was whew, that was that was pretty tight and two of our top athletes had, had surgery that year so we're out and then i would say the world championships this year um you know, just couldn't shake America quite off our tails. And I think, you know, going into next next season, I think we all know, like, we've got to train really, really hard to make sure that we're at the top of the podium. One thing I've always been impressed by, something I've always said in rowing, is that um, no one's no one's ever broken a world record without being pushed. Mm. You know, no one's ever broken a world record without having a boat three feet behind them. Oh, actually, <laughs> like, there is a boat that's done it, and it's the British Power 4. And to be able to breaking records whilst not being pushed is a is a different level of mental toughness and that's i mean that's something that's i don't know whether it's unfair to say or fair to just say that's probably woken a few rowers up to the fact i think i'm not the only one that's noticed that we're like okay like mm -hmm. that's flipping impressive yeah there might not be as much competition or or you might be ahead at the moment off the curve but okay if you're going out and breaking world records then you know there's that's impressive yeah there's, and, and it, it makes it easy training i'd say um and i think where para sport is interesting is you know we're talking about that development pathway which i kind of did obviously some of it um you know i didn't necessarily do the kind of under 23 route um whereas in para sport that 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 progression is a lot faster and yeah. so you've got yeah. some really young athletes who've got to put their big pants on and basically just turn up to train with world champions and paralympic champions and and be part of a kind of a legacy sport and what I really enjoy is, you know, over the, I've, I've rode in lots of different combinations of fours um, in my time on the program. And and every time, you know, we do win something or we push something or we get a world best time or whatever, you know, it's it becomes, it's not just like you're looking at the legacy thinking, oh my gosh, like, let's not drop the ball. Like, no, you'll become a part of that. And it's, it's you know, it's a really, really cool culture, I think. Um the, yeah, it makes it easy to turn up to training because I think everyone, I, I, I think, you know, the more years we go unbeaten, I think the heavier the burden. Yeah. Um, and the fundamental fact is we will lose. At some point, we will lose. I'd love to not be in it when that happens. I'm not going to lie, but yeah. I might be. Um, you never know. But um, I think, well, ask me again uh, after I've lost. But like if we, if we have 
prepped our best, trained our best, raced our best, and we get outclassed by someone else, um, I think I'd hopefully be at a point where I could be like, yeah, fair play, actually, um, because I know how hard our lot train. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, you know how much it takes in order to like get that. So yeah. if someone can put out a better performance than this, all right, fine. Yeah, Pro- yeah. Process-driven, not outcome-driven, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's how you can kind of keep on top of your performance. And I, again, like, yeah, in the absence of, of, you know, if you get to have a, a humdinger with a crew through the whole World Cup series. Okay, we were half a length faster, or we were a length faster, and we changed this. And there's a lot of other crews out there just measuring themselves of what other people are doing. Like you guys have just got to be all in, heads mm-hmm. in. Like, what are we doing? What are we feeling? Yeah. There's no one. There's not going to be some, not every time. There's going to be someone to be like, oh yeah, we were we were there. I think I guess also with with power rowing, maybe like consistency is a little bit different as well because you're dealing with so many other problems. Yeah, mm, like you look at like in the, in the um you know what men's eight or whatever you know quite a lot of those speeds were very very consistent. So if you gain half a length on a crew, you can you can kind of attribute oh yeah we did this this this. Whereas you guys like you said like sometimes you'll have a humdinger, another time you might win by a really big margin. Yeah, and and I also think. You've got kind of those external things going on. And then you've also got what's going on inside the boat as well. And and I think, you know, we talked about with people, different people's impairments and impacting things in different ways. Um, like G, for example, mm-hmm. um, I said she kind of had a problem with her foot. Like that actually um, was quite challenging in and around Tokyo um, because she just had to manage it all the time. If she was walking too much, it would have an impact. And I'd say like people's external lives and things that are just going on with their own bodies have potentially a, like a greater impact on the way that we train or, or like ed for example he's our stroke man at the moment mm-hmm. um he's a hemophiliac but essentially when he was younger he had a lot of bleeds um internally and kind of ended up with kind of problems with his ankles so essentially travel days are really tough for ed because you're just on your feet all the time yeah. and let's say we have a travel day and a delay because you know flights <laughs> right now <laughs> don't think anyone's had an easy kind of run um so you get out to a training camp or a competition where the turnaround has got to be pretty quick. It's kind of like, okay, well, we need to be aware that Ed's ankles are actually really sore. Mm-hmm. So we've got to modify that first session, you know, and should we cut that mileage down and all those sorts of things in a way that the senior program probably doesn't need to individualize and think about it that much. Yeah, yeah. And also I think the challenges as well is our lack of spares, you know, yeah. we oh. don't have that. I was going to ask you, yeah, so like during a normal season, for example, like let's take the example of the lead up to Tokyo, like how many athletes were you working with in sort of like the, in your group for obviously four seats? Yeah, I mean, really pretty much the crew was fairly set through the 2019 season seat racing that we did. Um, And once that crew was kind of set for that world championships, um, we did do some seat racing, mm-hmm. um, I believe, in kind of the 2019-20 season before we went into the pandemic. But generally, going into the pandemic, the general kind of conversation we had with kind of the selection panel and stuff was essentially that kind of our selection still stood provided, you know, we demonstrated in continuous improvement and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but generally, we had probably one, well, in that kind of World Champs crew and the people who raced, there was basically one additional woman and one additional man so it was very tight and intense i'd say now there's been some great work done through our development pathways and talent id and things like that so we're looking at this season which is kind of odd because obviously it's year three of the cycle but it's also games year yeah where year three of the cycle i'd say generally historically in the para squad that's where potentially kind of a lot of the trialing and selection was done and whilst there might be a couple of challenges in games year, 
it was sort of a bit more set. Whereas we are in games year and year three. Yeah. So there is quite a lot of trialing to be done this year, which is quite new for our squad. So I think, you know, to some extent, this is exactly what it's like in the Olympic program. And so, you know, this is a great um, show of, of more athletes and stuff like that. But I think it's more intense to some extent than the Olympic program. Um, because if you are a male stroke sider who can only row in stroke side because of your impairment, you know exactly there is one seat for you and that's the guy you got to beat. <laughs> it's yeah. very, very intense. Um, and I think, you know, it, it is a credit to the athletes in the team in the way that we all work together. And I hope, you know, that will still be the case in six months time when, you know, selection may well be done and, and some people have, are going to the games and some people aren't because it is, it's brutal, you know, Olympic year selection. And I mean, it's similar, I guess, for like, let's say the, the scholars on the men's on the women's sides at the mm -hmm. moment in the Olympic program where there's however many scholars and there's four seats. Um, yeah. The difference is in theory, they could sit in any seat. Whereas your, you know, bow sider on who's a woman can only sit in one. Yeah, yeah. You're not constrained to a literally a, a particular seat. It's a yeah. four, but not a four. In yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. interesting. There's still only one seat for you in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Mm. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, how was that for your squad? And how did you approach the competition? Were you excited? What was that like? Did it meet your expectations? Um, I mean, Tokyo was... The more nuts, like I, the more you just have time away from it, you're like, that was na that was mad. That was like a, it was like a novel, wasn't it? Like the whole pandemic was like dystopian yeah, very <laughs> fiction. Much. Um, and I would say, you know, so we, as I said, we were in, we probably had a better pandemic than I would say maybe the Olympic squad, partly because we were probably a little bit more secure in our seats. Mm. Um, the Olympic squad, you know, had a much tougher run of it because they were literally seat racing until everything got shut down and and then the kind of selection was obviously kind of revoked. It was all very stressful, whereas for us, it was definitely a little bit gentler. And um, unsurprisingly, kind of, I think it was really, really well run by our coaches. Um, we all had equipment at home. Mm -hmm. The general vibe was there was like a coffee morning eight to eight thirty on zoom you could just jump on and say hi there was no agenda we had a meeting once a week at that time in the morning um and then we had a program generally speaking it was like kind of two sessions a day um with flexibility around what that actually looked like and then we trained together doing kind of pieces on wednesdays and saturdays on zoom um all the coaches trained as well um, I trained with them like it was just a bit of a camaraderie and actually I've got to credit kind of Lauren Rolls mostly for this is that we then started basically picking up waifs and strays from other sports um, who were maybe training on their own and we were like we're doing this session if you want to join like um, like my dad joined for one of them nice. and like you could see all the screens he had like Alice Ty he's a very successful Paralympic swimmer joined we got her into erging um Baroness Tanigre Thompson joined us for a few. <laughs> like it was, it was pretty nuts. Like the, it was really, really cool. Um, so that was that kind of kept that, you know, community going. Yeah. Um, and then we basically kind of hit the games season, and it was really odd because, understandably, you had men's squad, women's squad, para squad, and we all sort of bubbled from each other. So we actually. Mm -hmm for the whole of that year, we're very isolated in our own groups. 
we even ate in different places, you know, in, in, in Caversham, there was like a marquee, like we all rotated through because obviously no one wanted to be in the marquee. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was very surreal, very surreal year. Um, lots of, you know, again, it was really early on in COVID, you were a close contact, you're just home for 10 days, you know, so back to that home training vibe and stuff. And so basically to get to the games was a massive relief. And then you PCR tested so much. Like we also because basically restrictions up themselves in Italy, the senior squads managed to get away for an international work camp right before the games. But because we were going like three weeks later, uh, by then Italy wouldn't let us in. So we ended up basically living in the Medeski Stadium Hotel uh, for five weeks. So, so, you didn't, <laughs> so you didn't under 23 come before Paralympics, basically? Oh, we, we, it was quite bleak. And then we just literally, all we, you know, all we did was spend time with each other. Thankfully, we had our own rooms. Otherwise, it would have gone nuts. I brought my sewing machine. I like did loads of sewing products. Uh, like I created loads of stuff. Like everyone just did what they needed to do. Yeah. There were like switch tournaments. Um, our coaches famously drank slash drink a lot of um, Monster. And so we created like a blind monster, like taste test competition. <laughs> Um, they were buzzing like the rest of the day and then obviously it's really surreal for the Paralympics because the Olympics is on at the same time mm. so we're doing our work camp watching our peers at the Olympics and so that was really weird because so we basically set up one of the rooms in Caversham we got like bean bags uh, Ben is our like coffee connoisseur so he brought in his super fancy coffee machine mm -hmm. and so we'd kind of do our first session when the rowing was on it was sort of like your call if you wanted to see that what the result was, but the rule was you couldn't tell anyone. Yeah. Um. So if you wanted to get up and watch it, you know, you could, or you could just check on the results in the morning. But then we would like, when the rowing was on, obviously it's on for like eight days or whatever, we'd do our first session, then we'd come in and have our breakfast and watch, yeah. watch rowing, which was weird. Like you wanted to watch, but it was also like, oh, I feel yeah. sick. Yeah. This is where we're going to be yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it was bizarre. And then the games themselves were like everything... Everything you expected to be nothing like you could possibly imagine because it's mm. the size of it. I think I couldn't really get my head around. And also, you know, you're seeing people you know, but you don't know because you just follow them on Instagram yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, famous faces and stuff. Um, and then, you know, surreal because there was just this beautiful stadium, yeah. which was empty. And I, I consider us quite lucky as rowers because you never start with a crowd. You always start in silence and it's just you. And by the time you would hit the crowd, um, you know, there's ringing in your ears anyway. Like yeah. you're not thinking about it. The time when it's weird is, you know, the national anthem and obviously, you know, all going well and you're just looking up and there's like five people and your coach will be like, yay, with a flag. <laughs> um, and and so that's that's where it was really odd. But I think the most stressful bit of it was essentially you did a PCR test every day. And, you know, you didn't, if you didn't hear anything, you were good news. But generally, like we handed in our PCR tests about 5am or whatever, when we were going down to the course and you'd normally hear by noon. And so I remember the day before we got to the afternoon and we knew that we were racing at like 11.24 or something. And so even if we did test positive tomorrow, we were just too late. We would have won by then. Nice. <laughs> so we, we always like the day before you sort of allow yourself to like think, okay, we're going to race the final because you never, you can never relax. 
every day that went past, every week went past, that was good. But pretty much like Anne had said to us, the team doctor, if you catch COVID kind of beyond May, you probably won't be going to the games because of the risk of you testing positive. Yeah. Um, you know, not basically getting that negative test or, you know, the Japanese were using a lot more advanced PCR tests yeah, and things yeah. like that. And you could basically put your whole team at risk. So I said the strain the stress of the games was not enough. I know. I know. So yeah, gratitude was probably the overriding emotion. And then it was just so weird because also, there's all the unglamorous parts of the games that no one talks about. Like the fact that... Go on. So if you look at old pictures of people on podiums, um, rowers specifically, that are wearing lycras. But if you'd notice from Rio, they are all in Team GB Paralympic Street tracksuits because uh. they sort of... I don't know. I don't know at what point someone was like, why aren't the rowers doing this? Like the swimmers have got to get changed. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. and so you have to get into your tracksuits. But context you land you finish and then they're like and you're like hugging celebrating you've just won and they're like go 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 you need to get changed you need to get changed you need to get changed and then they like put you in this little tent of this is what it was like in tokyo bear in mind it's like 38 degrees and really humid and you know like with then your other competitors who are you know silver and bronze you're like oh hi well done well done and you know someone's not as happy someone is happy you're like it's all really weird and then you're all in this like teeny tiny confinement and then you don't don't take your lycra off or anything you're just pulling your lycra up over your like sweaty lycra and then you've got like you know your toff and your thing and sorted everyone out foxy was like i think i'm gonna faint i think i'm gonna faint like this and then there was like sit down and drink fresh water and obviously then you need to make sure it's a sealed water and uh -huh. where from like ucad and drugs testing so and then i'm literally like you're getting on that podium like um you're not missing from this picture like it was just so weird it was so like rushed and then so you have this picture and it all looks really nice but underneath everyone's in this like horrendous like sweaty kit <laughs> and then you have to derig your boat and you know it's it's the end of a race right like you've still got to derig your boat put it in the container and you're like no i'm a champion now where's and, the person to do this and for you've done all your interviews and then they're like cool well can you get the boat bags and so it's it's not like a bad thing, you know, sweep the sheds, all of that sort of thing. But it's really, because also you didn't have any friends or family to go and celebrate yeah. with. It was just each other. Um, so it was mad. And then we flew home the next day, which was just surreal. So you weren't able to like, experience other sports or make friends with like people from other disciplines and stuff no, like that? No, because of the of the pandemic, you just needed to get, kind of get out and go. So we literally, we um, Uber eats some um, beers and sake nice. <laughs> into the village um, and then the coaches had all bought everyone some champagne so we had some champagne like in our flat basically with our coach and then we've been playing this game that I'd brought along called the mind it's not that complicated and so then we obviously played like the drinking mind which yeah. was fun but like also bear in mind you're in the village um, normally you go out and celebrate but you know someone downstairs or above or whatever might be having their final tomorrow so it's mm. not it's not a raucous party. And then also you had to pack. So it was also like, you don't want to pack the day before your final or the day, well, we weren't going to do the day off because it was so early, but it feels weird. Mm. You know, you're here for this big thing, but you're already getting ready to leave. So some people did pack, some people left it all till later. And then, yeah, we flew home the next day. And what was really weird is we landed back in the UK and we'd been full, like masked, gloved, everything, like so COVID compliant. And then you get back to the UK and by then 
basically that everyone had been like yeah we're over it now yeah and so at the airport all our family and friends were there it was amazing but it really weird like i ran and hugged my husband and i hadn't like hadn't seen him for nearly three months and but even that like not masked hadn't hugged people like yeah it felt it felt alien. Felt really weird. But what, you weren't wearing the hazmat suit of the airport, no. <laughs> no, but it was weird, like seeing people's faces. Like yeah. we we basically in the village, you had to be masked up a hundred percent of the time. Even when we were rowing, when you're outside, like basically when we rowed, we had to push off in masks, and then we were allowed to take them off. That's that's a good point. Little sidetrack here, but like I was working in an office, and then we had some new hires during COVID, mm-hmm. and then. Basically, uh, we had to like wear masks for like eight or nine months after, and then people started taking their masks off for the first time. We were like, "Wow, I've never seen your face." Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, obviously, I, I've spent a lot of time in a hospital recently, and I only saw my oncologist's actual face recently because the hospital, within the last like two months, have changed their rules on face masks. Oh. And I was like, "That's what your chin looks like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you look different." Uh-huh. Yeah. So obviously, two two world championships and a Paralympic medal, um, like some some easier than others. Um, the decision to keep going did, was some of that to do with the fact that maybe Tokyo wasn't all of the games that it could have been or should have been. Yeah, maybe. Um, but to be honest, it was an easy choice. It wasn't really a consideration that I wanted to retire. Um, I find like, and I appreciate this that I'm coming from the Cox's perspective where I am not doing all the training. I would mm. like to caveat with the fact that I do all the land training that my athletes do. Good. Um, we see we see a bit of it on the, yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, it's good. I do all I like the land that. training, not on a nerd, but I do do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I'm obviously cycling when they're on the water. So I'm not, I don't have all the full fatigue, um, but it is, it, I, the, the kind of concept of like, you know, you kind of complete something and you win something. Like imagine in, the real world <laughs> in like a business yeah. and you go and you're working really hard to get that client or get that win or you know you can tell i have a real real job because i'm not really sure what i'm talking about but <laughs> promotion or promotion yeah. or whatever and then you're like and now i should retire and fundamentally change my lifestyle and <laughs> and it's it's odd and obviously i know why obviously we retire because so we're putting our bodies on the line and they can't do that forever mm-hmm. but almost doing it in the four-year cycle i understand why but then also it's hard like you might end up ripping that bandaid off too soon or having you know feeling forced into making that decision so for me like I I definitely knew I wanted to carry on um and you know I've I've said this to my coach already that like I'm not planning on retiring after Paris as it stands that doesn't mean that I'll definitely be in Los Angeles because aside from anything else someone could come and trial against me and beat me or, or whatever but fundamentally like right now where I am and I felt the same in Tokyo like I don't feel ready to walk away from the sport and what I do because I just genuinely love it. Mm. I I think I'm so lucky that my hobby turned into a job and, um, you know, and the job's going well. Like, and, it's, yeah. and I'm really enjoying it. I'm not kind of ready to ready to walk away. I actually had a really good chat with Joe Ratton recently. He was actually in that development eight I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's um, been to multiple world championships. And she said for her, like, it got to the point where the pull of other things mm that you end up not being able to do because you are in this sport and in this lifestyle became greater than her love for it. And she was like, yeah. whilst I still really love rowing and I always will, I wanted to start doing other stuff. And I was like, that's quite that's quite a nice place to be in, you know, if you think, yeah, actually still love it, 
but actually it's holding me back from other things. Yeah, just waiting until that moment kind of comes to you organically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we've talked about the opportunity cost before and um, I think the same for me. It's the point at which in my career where the um, the cost of continuing was was higher than that had become higher than I was mm-hmm. willing willing to get. Yeah. And I, for me, like, I think if you can look at it, if you can take a step back and look at it that way, becomes quite an easy decision. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's okay. I, I want something else more now. Like, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. And I, I actually really hate the kind of sacrifice rhetoric um, because I I don't think it's a sacrifice. I think it's mm. a conscious choice. Mm. If anything, if anyone's sacrificing anything, I think it's our nearest and dearest, to be honest. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's our, um, you know, sometimes I joke that, you know, on a Saturday morning, like my husband's a bit of a rowing widow and I'm just off. Which is why we got the allotment. <laughs> I was like, here we go. It's something for you to do. Um, well, he's, he's very into his mountain biking. Um, but I think, yeah, like I, I, I never really see it as a sacrifice because I think that's almost like you're being forced to give something up and actually yeah. I'm making those choices. Alex Partridge said that it's, he didn't look at it as a sacrifice. It was just what's required mm. in, order to, in order to succeed. Yeah. yeah, there's a great book. I think, I can't remember. I think it might have been Paul Thompson. Uh, it's a book my dad had. It was on sculling, and no, I don't think it was Paul. I think it was an Australian. Anyway, the final bit of the book is that um, is that the, there's three things required for success, and everyone's willing to do the first two, and no one wants to do the third. And it, number one is work out the goal. Number two is work out the price to achieve the goal. Number three is pay it. Mm. And it's if you actually sit anyone down for their goal, if you sit them down and ask them to, well, okay, so what do you want? And well, I want a new car. What would it take for you to do that? Well, you know, I make this much and I spend this much, so I'd have to not go out the weekend and I'll start making my own lunches and I won't buy coffees at Starbucks and in 18 months' time I could have a new car. Well, do it. But I like going out and I like a Starbucks car. Okay, then then you're not willing to pay the price. It kind yeah. of becomes like a simple equation. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing that most people know what's required of them. Yeah. And it just depends whether you're willing to... Yeah, like you said, do it. Not necessarily sacrifice. Just do it. Just, just do yeah. what do what do what it takes. Yeah, most most people have the c- capability to put in the work and cross out that goal, like you said. But it's the sacrifice, you know. Yeah. Um, for them, I think that's just perspective. There's an interesting line of perspective. Just by calling it that, automatically makes you feel like you're giving something up in order yeah. to yeah. take something else. Well, uh, my mentor has a great quote, and he says, uh, "If you don't sacrifice for your goals, then your goals become the sacrifice." yeah no i can see that and and i think yeah like so for me like so yeah carrying on ticking along with with it i was just like yeah why wouldn't i I love i love this job it's amazing and and yeah it's it's finding new ways to like i say not making it stale and and i also think having been to games now like suddenly i find myself you know more of one of the veteran athletes even though i as i say i still feel fresh and like oh that's exciting and and it yeah, I still find that weird. I still find that an odd one. Like I came to Leander today actually to kind of um, give them a, it was, it's October, so Breast Cancer Awareness Month and kind of had a bit of a chat with um, uh, some of the athletes about about that. And then Rossi was like, oh, I won't introduce you because I know who you are. And I was like, weird, can you still introduce me? Because I don't, that's weird. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I still find, I still find that bizarre. I still feel fresh, yeah. fresh-faced. So I wanted to ask you, obviously, you come away from the Paralympic Games with a gold medal. Mm-hmm. It's a short cycle because it's only three years until the next Games. You're all happy, preparing, just turning up to training, and then you get delivered some bad news. Mm-hmm. What happens? Yeah, so, yeah, I was on training camp in May. So I'd actually had 
from the games to December off, which was a lovely, what what a great time that was, winning holiday, a <laughs> lovely time. Started back at training in January. Um, and then, yeah, had basically all going well, trained through to March. And then I found a lump when I was on training camp. Uh, just I was in the shower and went home, got it checked. Um, and then I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was diagnosed with kind of grade two, stage two triple negative breast cancer. Um, and I knew at the point that I had the diagnosis that I would need chemotherapy and I would have neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which means chemo before surgery. Um, and... Uh, in my head, I was like, I'm 100% having a double mastectomy. Like, I'm not messing around. And then I was like, what about rowing? <laughs> How is this going to fit in? And yeah. and it genuinely was one of the things that crossed my crossed my mind almost immediately. Like, what about my career? Because, you know, rowing isn't it's not just a career, really. It's a lifestyle. It's everything you do. Um, and I'd, I'd talked to my team. They knew I was having this appointment. And I had also checked with them if it was right if I flew out a day late because the whole team was going out the day the day before on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I told called Tom Dyson. Um, Nick was still in the air at the time, so he told Nick for me. I called Anne Redgrave, uh, the team doctor, and they were like, you "Sure, you still want to come?" I was like, "Yep," because what else am I going to do? And yeah, literally had my parents over and my in laws over for dinner, and I told them what I knew, which wasn't a lot at the time, and then I went to bed and husband dropped me off at the airport the next day and uh, I remember I was queuing to check in and for some reason um the site hadn't flown out on the first day and she was flying out and she was like four in front of me in the queue in the airport and I was like oh hell no I am not queuing up next to you and you psychoanalyzing me with this current life-changing situation I find myself in yeah and so I just wandered off <laughs> to like boots for like 15 minutes and I was like yep she's gone through okay cool and then I <laughs> Because I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't deal. I don't know how I feel right now, so I can't talk to you. And it was so funny because I was like, oh, I'm just going to slip in. In the nice way possible, a World Cup. Like, no one's going to notice that I wasn't there. Obviously, my direct team will know. Um, and then I literally turn up at um, uh, the hotel and everyone is there in their kit, milling around in the lobby about to take a team photo. And I just walk in with my suitcase and I was like, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Oh yeah, I didn't notice. And I was like, oh, for goodness sake. Um, but yeah, so we raced that World Cup um, and we won, which was amazing. There was like a teeny tiny percent of me, which I was like, what if I can't do this? But actually I was pretty confident I could. Um, yeah, and I think really that set the tone for me and my family and my friends because it's all very well saying this is how I want to live my life and this is what I want to do throughout my diagnosis and treatment but then you just do it <laughs> like we were saying you know you, mm-hmm. you can talk the talk but here we go walk the walk and and I think that really set the tone for how I wanted to operate and you know I you know have said it before say it again I was so supported by kind of a combination of my oncology team really understanding why it was important to me to keep competing and racing whilst it was safe and sensible mm. through to communicating with um, the GB rowing team, with Anne, with Tom, with Nick, that it was okay and sensible for me to do it. And, you know, we had very blunt, open conversations. And sometimes it was them saying, you're not doing this now when it came to the world champs. And I was like, <laughs> I, I, I still wanted to do it, but... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm we kind of came to the decision that I'd end my, end my season at the Euros instead. Um, and it was, it was kind of complete, perfect collaboration. It was exactly what I needed. 
And, you know, as I said, Morgan and I basically bounced across in different sections, you know, Oxford, and then she was there. I'd just never done Brooks, basically, but that was pretty much like we'd done pretty much everything else. And then she had been selected for the women's seat and the women's uh, team weren't sending an eight. So she had raced throughout the season with them and all of a sudden, you know, was facing then kind of last six, seven weeks of the season without a crew to Cox. Mm -hmm. And I was stepping back. So it was kind of, things never happen like this. This never works out. And it was perfect because she and I had a really blunt conversation. She was like, I'm not interested in your seat long-term. I'm going to step in as a mate and I will do this and I'll obviously, you know, have a great time and really put my all into it. But then it's your seat. And that was so reassuring for me to kind of, you know, pass the mantle on. And then, and I really also tried to consciously then step back and I was obviously supporting, but I was like, this is your boat now for the next two months. And, and then I'll come back and get it back. And, and that's sort of, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a tough summer, but it, it was, it was amazing. No better person than, like, like you okay. said, as if to have to have Morgan waiting in the wings is perfect. Yeah, it's not exactly a bad substitute, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. she was, and she was fabulous, and and I think, yeah, it was really reassuring, and and it was mad because Euros, I think, kind of when it all changed for me, like, and I'd say, like, you know, my other part of my life, because I basically I st- decided to be public about breast cancer and having it at such a young age. So I was twenty nine when I was diagnosed and really fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um partly because I didn't want to just disappear from the international scene and people think I'd retired mm. and or people think, oh, a seat's up for grabs mm. or, or whatever. Mm. And and it almost felt like I was like hiding from it or embarrassed or ashamed or whatever. And I was like, I'm just going to be really open about it. And I started sharing stuff partly because um, one, it's really hard to keep people informed of what's going on in your life when you've got something that big going on and you're in health because people want to know how you are and actually it became I'm not gonna lie a really convenient way to inform quite a large number of people that I was okay yeah. taking along without it's replying not, to WhatsApp yeah have the same conversation a oh, hundred times over exactly and it took the burden off my husband and my parents yeah. as well and then it became a bit more about raising awareness because as I started posting about things I was learning things about the realities of of breast cancer, of chemotherapy, of living with these sorts of things as a younger woman. So it became a bit more information sharing. And then when I did the Euros, I did a piece for the BBC around it. And I was kind of lucky because the European Champs was part of a wider games that were happening in Munich with about 11 different sports. So it was having even more kind of BBC coverage and stuff. Okay. And it, my social media just went nuts. Yeah. And it sort of made me realize that like, this is bigger than me and actually this is a really cool opportunity. And, and and I I kind of, I was doing the rowing for me, selfishly, really. Like, I like rowing. I want to race. I'll go race. Um, and became something much, much bigger. And I was like, wow, what kind of privilege this is. And I remember quite early on, someone from my church had said to me, you know, don't ask, oh, why me? Just be like, oh, why me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, re- reframe it. And I sort of, thought okay well yeah actually reframing became a really really important part of my my recovery and and kind of navigating through it and I think I think that's something that is a lesson for anybody really who's going through anything that's tough is is just sort of the the ability to reframe and rethink and put into context absolutely I mean opening up about it I imagine wasn't easy like putting yourself in front of a camera and just talking about something that's so like deep and personal it's it's a bit daunting 
but also like you never know how many people are going to watch a video when you tell women to you know go and check out if they've got any lumps and like how many people that could potentially save I wanted to ask like how soon into like the diagnosis like you knew that you were going to get get through this and beat it that it wasn't terminal um so I knew that the it was basically the plan was to try and cure mm-hmm. um so I knew that so um based on the kind of stage that I'd found it at which again was one of the reasons that I bang on you know about early detection because fundamentally that that is the best thing that you can possibly do yeah. to kind of improve your your odds um but the biggest kind of, I think, like fear moment was, so I had a lot of chemotherapy because I had triple negative. So basically there are three kind of things that a breast cancer cell can be receptive to, which is estrogen, progesterone, or HER2, which is a protein. And you basically can have any combination of positives and negatives of all those different types. Um, and I had triple negative, so I was negative to all three, which basically meant no immunotherapy works um, I can't have any kind of hormone blockers and things. Mm-hmm. You just have to batter it with chemo. And so my first scan was after my first kind of section of chemo, which was about two months. Um, so that was kind of mid-September, I think. Yeah. I had a scan and that that's the kind of, um, that was the biggie really when you were like, how has this worked? You know, battering my body for two months. And that was when, there was a kind of significant reduction in its size. Yeah. Um, and that was huge because I also knew I had 12 chemos to go. So I'm like, this is good. <laughs> we started well. Um, and then I had another 12 chemos. And then before, when I had three to go, I had another scan. And they basically, it was great because um, it, it was an ultrasound. And so you're lying there and obviously it's a doctor. You don't know because it's just kind of a general scan. And then it was great because they, so what they do when you have um, something, when you're having kind of chemo first, is they'll put a little marker in, um, it's called a clip, which they basically attach to the cancer cell. So all being well, the cancer dissolves itself and the clip remains so they know where it was. And I remember I was in that scan and they're looking, and then they're getting up my old scan results and I was thinking, well, if you can't find it, this is good. Like, and I'm like lying there like, hee hee like you can't find it and this is great and they basically said it was kind of immeasurable on an ultrasound and I had three chemos to go so you know it was over that kind of period that you're like okay this is working and 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 that was that was key and then the big big one was it not being in my lymph nodes which I found out in surgery which was in January this year and then they test under a kind of microscope your cells to make sure there's no cancer left from all the tissue they removed so it's only at that point you know, you you get the all clear sort of call, which is a pretty pretty big moment. That was for me. That was March fifteenth. Awesome. <laughs> how, how would you say like going through chemo is like in terms of like how do you for for people who are like going through it or like preparing themselves to like go to it now? Like, what would you compare it to? Like, how difficult is it? And what sort of like what was sort of the shining light at the end of the tunnel for you that you were like, okay. I'm stronger than this. Yeah. Um, I think chemo, the biggest, I think the worst bit is the first bit when you don't know how it's going to hit you because it hits everyone in a really, really different way. There's no one size fits all. You have chemo. There's also so many varieties of chemo. Chemo, saying chemotherapy is like an umbrella term for like saying the word painkiller. You can oh, yeah. have, you know, ibuprofen, aspirin, paracetamol, 
all the way through to codeine and morphine, you know, and anything that's like helps you manage pain. Yeah. It's a bit like that with chemotherapy. It can come in all shapes and forms. It can be pill form, IV. Um, it can be kind of directly fed into veins, all these sorts of things. So um, for me, chemo was the, the biggest fear was starting a new one because you don't know how it's going to hit you. Yeah. And then it actually is quite gradual. So once you get over the first bit and you're like, okay, this is where I am. It's quite gradual. So whilst you can see the changes happening, you're living them. I think where it's weird when you, like my husband, for example, will be living those changes with me. But my parents, who I saw every few weeks, would come back and they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, you've you've gotten worse. It's mm. caught up on you. Or I think it was quite hard for some of the rowers who I saw before they left for the World Championships and I didn't see them again till after the break. You know, I... I looked a lot worse. Um, I was struggling a lot more. And so it's those sorts of things which are really hard. Even now I look back at pictures of myself from a year ago and I'm like, oh my gosh, I look awful. I look so tired and puffy. And But at the time, it's not really changed much from the day before or two days before. So you don't notice it in yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the biggest challenges for me with chemotherapy was the brain fog. So um, the best way to describe it is almost like you're constantly living in that bit where you've just woken up potentially with a hangover like on a Sunday after a heavy night okay but like you know when someone's talking to you and you're like why are you on a bed and then like it's as simple as where did I put this thing and you're like what and you know it's like basic things and and for me who you know I've come across on this I'm like I feel like I'm fairly switched on quite bubbly, quite whatever. I think that was probably the biggest, ch hardest thing for me because if I'm honest, I felt really stupid. I felt really slow. Like my, I was like walking through treacle mm. and I think that was really tough and sort of having confidence that that would go <laughs> was quite a big thing, you know, because my job is about being switched on. It's about being really aware and noticing things and all that sort of thing. So that was tough. And like, I remember the first time you're saying mm -hmm. about sharing, like I remember the first time I sort of showed myself basically with pretty much no hair on Instagram. Like I was really nervous about that and stuff, even though like, duh, people following me knowing I'm having chemotherapy. I wore like a lot of baseball caps because weirdly I lost loads of hair, like in the crowd, like a backwards monk, like I lost <laughs> loads here, but I kind of kept a lot of it around the edge. So if I was wearing a baseball cap, you wouldn't really know. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of, you know, weird. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, once I went fully bold, I sort of just lent into it, to be honest. And I'm not going to lie, like when you get that much poorlier, your kind of need for empathy grows and your need for consideration and stuff like that. And particularly when we were going into the winter as I was getting to the big points of my chemo, I just didn't want someone coughing near me. Mm. I was like, come on. So actually almost going out and about into town and wearing a headscarf or it being more obvious you had cancer or were ill, the stuff I really almost shied away from at the beginning, I almost lent into because I was like, do you know what? I'd love it if someone offered to help carry my bag right now yeah. <laughs> or didn't cough in my face. Yeah. So, or like, we're like, I'll give you a hug. Oh, I've got a cold. You know, actually that's better. Yeah. So, you know, you just sort of, you sort of evolve. I had chemo over five months, so you know it was a it was a long process and that's a long time absolutely but you're all through with it now do you still have any treatments re uh, remaining or are you all in the clear and back to your best self 
Yeah, definitely all in the clear, which is great. And I I had my double mastectomy in January and then I had actually a further reconstruction surgery two weeks ago. So I am like now fully done for surgery, kind of, I'm basically, I'm pretty mobile now. I'm not really driving. Um, that's just kind of building that one back in. But mm-hmm. other than that, like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. So yeah, it should be, give it another week or two and then full foot down getting ready for Paris. Awesome. So like, then in terms of moving forward, like in something I was sort of interested in and people talk about you've been given sort of a different perspective, obviously um, it sort of can change how you view stuff. I think for small things that can be really great, like probably don't get that angry in the car anymore <laughs> or things like that. But in terms of like rowing, obviously it's quite a big part of your life and it's something that's important to take really important. How did it have an effect on that? Did it make you feel like it wasn't as important or more important? And like, like yeah. what can be gained, I guess, from talking about the experience that not everyone is going to have, hopefully, um, yeah. but maybe could still kind of like take some advice from. Yeah, I think that's really good. So I, weirdly, during cancer treatment, it felt more important. You know, it felt like it was something to really work towards and push towards. I think it really gave me a gratitude for the fact that this is my job. Um, and there can far too easily be times when you get annoyed by something that's so not important and you just have to have a bit of a like context being like, come on, this is actually pretty cool that you get to do this. Um, so I think it made me appreciate that even more. Um, I think weirdly the rowing's not that important thing came to me more actually during the pandemic when people were like, oh, the Olympics is cancelled and Paralympics cancelled. And I was like, there's a plan pandemic. Like, of course it should be cancelled. That almost came for me there. So weirdly then when I was going through my treatment, it became more important to me. And I think for me, like I I definitely would say I've got um, more of a perspective and I'd say um, things like birthdays. I wasn't a big birthday princess or person, but like I think less so about like I'm alive for my birthday, but more I've had friends who've passed away um, in the last weeks, to be honest, um, who don't get to have any more birthdays and they're in their 30s. And I think it's things like that, which I'm like, ah, shit, like this is where it's really real. And in in all honesty, sometimes I'm genuinely watching the telly and there's a Macmillan advert with Cancer Research UK and they're talking about it. And then I genuinely, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I had cancer. Because almost like you normalize it, yeah. it's actually like, like I still haven't worked out how to get it into conversation yet. When you go like, oh, I had breast cancer last year, but I'm fine now yeah. because everyone's <laughs> like, oh, oh, I don't know how to react to you. And yeah. I, haven't, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Um, but I definitely have, like way more appreciation for life and and what I am really lucky to do. And I I think for me, I got diagnosed and one of my early thoughts were like, what about rowing? Which is so ridiculous. But actually like how lucky that is. Like how great is that, that I had that to think about um, and that I had that goal. Um, And a lot of people said, oh, why did you carry on? And I'm like, well, if I'd have thought this is an opportunity to stop, then maybe I'm not doing the right thing. Maybe that wouldn't have been where I should be in my life at that point. And 
And actually, it made me realize, to be honest, I really like my life, which is what a great thing to have. Like, I love Henley. I love living around here. I'm so lucky. I've sort of got great friends, great family. Like, some people really struggle when they get ill because people back off mm. and shy away because it's, it's an uncomfortable situation. But, like, I experienced none of that. Like, I just experienced kind of instead people gathering around me, which was amazing. And that was at work at at home and everything so I think I think you know if if hopefully you don't have to have something quite as major as this but yeah. I think I think it's thinking about I do genuinely think you know life is too short to do things that make you unhappy fundamentally yeah Tom has a good quote about that from Jim Carrey yeah his dad he talked about how his dad was a really funny guy and um he could have been a good comedian but he had a wife and two young kids so he got like a really safe, boring job that he hated. And like after 18 months, he got made redundant. So they got stuck in a mess anyway. So mm. he said, you can fail at what you don't want. So you may as well have a go at what you do want. Yeah. I think failures can be everywhere and it's part of life. And uh, yeah, I think that's really the fact that it gave you like, it almost like backed up that you were doing what you want to do. Because sometimes I think with rowing, something like rowing, it's so... Um, all-encompassing that it's difficult to have the context of being like do I, am I actually here because I want to be or mm. am I here because I'm trying to prove it to someone else or just to myself that I was good enough we had that kind of discussion with Lola and yeah I guess like to have the opportunity to step back and like if that's something you can take and again sort of remember speaking to Al Sinclair when we were like how you know because for a long part of his career he he rode without any success mm. and we just said how did you do that how did you muscle through how did you keep going it's like I just like decided was I enjoying my life like am I enjoying where I was living am I enjoying the people I'm spending time with like oh I like it like I'll keep going it's interesting to hear the same thing from a different perspective of I think that's like the most important thing you can kind of look back if you want to step back it's just like am I happy here and like yeah there is some opportunity cost and I could be doing some other things but yeah am I enjoying what I'm doing I think that's like that's the simplest part of life yeah and it's made me also really think about you know like the the social impact or responsibility that maybe I I feel not every athlete kind of necessarily has it but um you know I, I've got like the the other side of of basically being able to do what I do and do it for a living is I do have kind of a bit of a, a platform mm -hmm. um and generally speaking you know it's a relatively you know small platform of of people but I think it's, you know, it's it's that sphere of influence that you can have a really positive influence on someone's life. And 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 like you say, it's whether that's someone checking themselves and finding something they might not have found before through to kind of helping that next generation of 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 um people. And I think I think that's that's something that I didn't realise I had so much enjoyment in and that's yeah. something that's really lucky to do. Yeah, like also showing that it can be done and, mm -hmm. and sort of like leading the way, serving as an inspiration to to older people, younger people or, or people who are going to follow in, in a similar path in, in their life as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no one's got a platform for everyone. So it doesn't really matter if you have a small or a big platform. Yeah. If if one person's helped, that's all it really that's all, yeah. it, all you really need, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And and like I think there's so many studies um about exercise and cancer. Um, all the way through from so like people don't think breast cancer is a lifestyle factor influenced cancer but mm -hmm. it is whilst there's obviously a lot of other things in genetic and luck just like a lot of these things um, actually kind of diet and lifestyle does impact it partly because of the amount of estrogen you're producing whether you're healthy or less healthy and that has an impact 
Um, and so there's all the way through from diagnosis and and kind of getting breast cancer and being diagnosed with it through to managing uh, treatment of side effects and chemotherapy. And that is obviously goes across any type of cancer you might have, but exercising during chemotherapy is literally proven to reduce side effects. And then on the other side of cancer, there's incredible statistics about people who are doing, you know, the government mandated amount of exercise on the other side of it and their survival rates over five years. It's it's huge. So it was, it's really interesting. It's, it's definitely something that is becoming more and more common in the rhetoric of cancer specialists and oncologists and support charities is actually, you know, who knew movement is really good for you. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's great to be able to do that as well in, in kind of a positive way. And particularly, I actually think, I hope my message comes through in a little bit of a more realistic way than if I was actually a rower because I'm a coxswain that chooses to exercise alongside my athletes. So I am a professional athlete, yes. But, you know, I in a race, I use my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, maybe that is useful for bringing the message home because, you know, if I was a rower and I was, you know, six foot and absolutely stacked, they'd be like, yeah, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course you want to exercise. Yeah, yeah. Whereas actually, I, I maybe don't look like the person that does exercise. <laughs> it's all right. I think I've just realized that the coxes are the, like some of the only people in rowing who actually have to have good hand-eye coordination. Yeah. With steering. <laughs> it does come in handy, it turns out, in rowing. Yeah, definitely. And like, yeah. Also the ability to like, yeah, you've got to work like 60 meters ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a lot yeah. of look forward. Yeah. It's a good wolf for life. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, we're just going to ask you some quick fire round questions. Oh, Okay. Um, what are some of your favorite rowing venues that you've trained at, visited, or raced at? I'd say Lake Bled in Slovenia. Oh yeah, uh, what a stereotype! But yeah, oh my fun. gosh, amazing, beautiful. Um, and I have really just personally fond memories of Varese. Um, I spent a lot of my life there, so thankfully I do really love it. But on a flat day, Varese, I don't think you can beat it. The mountains out, and yeah. I'm, it's definitely one of those like pinch me moments. Nice lake. The color of the water is quite unique as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like Banielas, it's got like its own little tint of blue. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, doesn't Kavisham on a flat day make it into the top? <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> into if the I'm top. Get- top into the top places i have been um but if i'm getting if i'm getting off to have a breakfast burrito then it does sort of lift the vibe but yeah fair enough um what are some of the races that you'd like to or regattas that you'd like to do again or repeat or if you could go back in time and do again when you're 60 or 70 oh i'd say one of my favorite ever races i'd love to relive was met regatta in 2014 yeah, I know. I've done some big races, but this is one of the biggies. Is because I was um, with my boat race crew and we'd done the boat race and then we were kind of going and proving ourselves to the rest of the, mm. the rowing world, um, which at that point, boat race crews weren't really doing that as much. Um, and then we were racing a GB development boat. A lot of those women I ended up going to cox in that kind of development era and Henry Fieldman was coxing and we were massive underdogs. And we shot out and sort of got five seats up and then experienced probably what I would say is the slowest row through of my entire life where I could literally hear every single call that Henry was saying next to me. And they got in front of us by that bow ball and then about 1100 to go, like you said, when Morgan says, you need to go, we need to go. I kind of had that relationship with those women and I just remember being like, we got to go now. And we managed to basically row through them and win by a canvas. And it was just one of the best i just remember like 
what, what no one really talks about. So when you cox an amazing race, I get the shakes big time mm-hmm. afterwards because I have so much adrenaline that I have not put anywhere. And it just comes out and you're like, <laughs> like, you know, and it's, you're like, you're, you're fizzing, it's mad. Um, and that was probably like, probably one of the first times that I'd really kind of had that in a 2K side by side. So that, that would be one of the amazing ones. And if I could do it again and change the result, um, would probably be um, one of the same seasons and maybe doing it at Henley Women's because I have never had a good regatta at Henley Women's. I have underperformed in every single crew that I have done. So I will not be retiring until I've won Henley Women's. I'm just throwing that out there. But good. Um, and, if anyone's looking for <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, let me know. Um, because that race, you guys won't have done it, runs out on you really fast mm. because it comes at you. And obviously, if you're familiar with the Henley stretch, you're like, and then we get to the enclosure. There's no enclosure at <laughs> the end. And, and so... I'd love to have a like a lovely little run of um, of Henley Women's. Uh, I think that would be pretty fun. I like oh. those good answers. Yeah, yeah. I- I'm sure you'll get to do that. <laughs> I'm sure, and and I hope uh, a crew will pick you up. And like, oh, of course, it yeah. won't. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the question I ask is if you could travel back in time to the age you were when you really first fell in love with rowing, what advice would you give your younger self? Um, I'd say almost kind of. Don't don't try and be like other coxes and just what you're doing is good enough. Just keep keep plugging away at that. Because I definitely think I went through a stage or a phase where I thought I should be like X or Y. Or I'd listen to someone else's recording and be like, that's that's what that should be. And that's what how it should be. And actually, like we said when we we're talking about the boat race stuff, why did you get selected? I think, well, because I I hadn't followed the book or the process. Um, and so I think it would probably be just to kind of don't try and imitate and just try and do your own thing. I think that probably would have helped me and built more confidence a little bit earlier on, which kind of might have might have served me a little bit better in some of those races that I did. Love that. Focusing on your strengths. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've just got one last question. Okay. Who are some of your rowing idols or people that you've looked up to or you still look up to? Um, I'd say... Catherine Grange is a big one. Um, DKG. Oh, because like I even see her now. I saw her I was at the Women of the Year Awards recently and she was there and I went up and said hello and she was so lovely and gave me a hug and even so I was like, Catherine Grange, she's just so cool. That's and awesome. That's I, awesome. you know, I like read her book before I even kind of got properly into it. And I even remember, so I coxed her. Um, it was kind of pre-Rio when they were maybe looking, her and Vicky were maybe looking at coming into the eight and uh-huh. um, they jumped in our boat a little bit. And I just remember being like, um, have you got any feedback? And she was just so kind. And um, she is probably kind of one of those athletes that I look up to because I don't think, to be honest, she gets enough respect for literally <laughs> her medal count is outrageous yeah. over such a long period of time amazing and then i also really really respect her from the way that she was an athlete you know she is humble and um generous in her time and kind of treated everyone you know my experience at cavisham whether you were like me and just dropping in to do some development stuff through to kind of you've been to multiple games it was it's that there was kind of real fairness around the way that she kind of operated around the building mm-hmm. um was someone I really looked up to. And then the other person probably be Sam Townsend, who I I obviously lived with for a number of years, who um, I would say is someone who 
almost doesn't have the medal count to his name mm. that he deserves. Yeah. Um, he is the ultimate gentleman, such a hard grafter. Um, and I don't know how someone was that successful when they have Weetos every day for breakfast. <laughs> like, he was such a champ. And so, yeah, again, I think, interestingly, it's not necessarily about their medal count or then you know vis-a-vis successes it's the way they were athletes Mm -hmm. um and i think you know that's something i hope that i kind of try and take on and and pass down to that next generation that it's it's about more than just performances i love that epic answer and and both those people would love to get on a podcast i also like love focusing on not on their medal tally but like on their character because you can just learn so much more from from those people like with so much experience in the area that you want to go into so no that's that's absolutely fantastic yeah awesome i love to hear when the greats are great you know what i mean like yeah. Catherine, like and you meet that person and she's great and yeah like, <laughs> or like um when the michael jacks um michael jordan um documentary came out you know and you were just i remember watching it thinking I really hope yeah. he actually is great. You know, I, what I don't want to hear is everyone saying he was such a dick. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, you want to believe that the great people are great. And yeah, like, yeah, Catherine's like one of those, like pers- personifies it. So Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're so lucky that they're both still involved in our sport. Yeah. You know, obviously, and Catherine running the sport, but then you've got Sam Townsend's obviously running the program over at Radley. And, and you just think these are the sorts of people you want you know, representing yeah. us. And um, yeah, I think it's it's really cool that, that people still want to stay in the sport and give back as well. If all the good people leave, we're screwed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> awesome. Erin, listen, it's been absolutely fantastic to have a chat, hear, hear about your story of how you got into coxing, how you fell in love with the sport, how you then became a Paralympic champion, and obviously the most recent story of like how you overcame breast cancer, which is, I think it's it's a really inspirational thing. And I'm glad that we're able to like share it out with other people who will hopefully learn or avoid some of the pitfalls that otherwise would have they would have been facing. So no, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And at some point, I'd, I'd love to have you on again. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Yeah, it's been really good. Um, we talked a lot. We've talked a lot before about um, you know controlling the controllables and and being ready for that thing that's going to go wrong. And you know, there's no bigger example of, of you know, that, that curveball than, than what's happened to you. So I think for anyone, like talking about perspective, which has kind of been a theme of this one as well, you know, for anyone going through things or struggling or whatever, like I think hopefully that'd be some really good advice in there for how to deal with those things. And uh, yeah, and I really appreciate you having your time and obviously best of luck for the rest of the season. We'll be keeping an eye on things and um, maybe uh, next summer we'll uh, we'll get another chat with you. Oh, yeah, hopefully with another another big gold medal around my neck. Yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> Absolutely. Best of luck for Paris. And I think that concludes everything for today's episode. So on that note, easy there. Cue the music.